get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Happy Tuesday. It's 7.01, your time check. Brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. On this day of Game 1 of the 2020 World Series. You will hear that tonight here on 101 ESPN. And it comes your way from Arlington at... 6.30 with the pregame. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing? Good morning, Randy. How are you? I'm doing well. You've got a, 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 a new look mic set up here. We've, we've got a droopy mic in the studio, and you would have had to actually hold the mic up for the entire show. We didn't want you to do that, so we moved another mic over for you. Is this comfortable for you? You know, um, not particularly. <laughs> there is kind of a panel here, so I can't fully scoot over and still have my <laughs> headphones and computer attached, so we're just going to be leaning the entire time. But yeah, this droopy mic is, is a bad setup. Nobody wants a droopy mic. And this just happened yesterday. Normally, the uh, setup here is perfect. It's beyond reproach, and for whatever reason, we've got a droopy mic this morning. Scott Manziara's mark mic is not droopy. Good morning, <laughs> Scotty. How you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Everything's terrific. Getting ready for the World Series after last night's fun night of Monday Night Football. Michelle, did you pay much attention to that doubleheader? Um, I certainly was locked into the last game, Randy. You had to watch the Cowboys and the Cardinals. That was great. The first game was the Chiefs and the Bills. Kansas City improves to 5-1 and one at Buffalo, where the Bills fell to... Four and two on the year. Kansas City took an early lead and then Buffalo came back. But early in the third quarter, with Buffalo threatening, they were down 13 to 10. Kansas City put together a drive. It's fourth and less than a foot. The Chiefs are three for six on fourth down this year. Give through the middle. First down and more into the end zone for a touchdown. Darrell Williams breaking through on fourth and short. And the Kansas City Chiefs now with a nine-point lead late here in the third quarter. The extra point was good, making it 20-10, to 10, and Kansas City won it 26-17. to 17. Michelle, their longest touchdown of the night, so atypical of the Chiefs, was that 13-yard run by Darrell Williams. Patrick Mahomes only threw for 225 yards, and the Chiefs showed the world that if they need to play defense and run the ball, they can. Oh, so they're a multifaceted football team, Randy? Yeah, so they they're, are. They're, they're good and they can beat you yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yeah. yeah. They ran for 245 yards. Steve Spagnolo's defense is playing fantastic for them. Total yards allowed, 206 by the Chiefs' defense. And 
If, if you're playing them now, you have to be really concerned because especially once they get Le'Veon Bell That's to play right. in the passing game, he's one of the he might be the best pass catching back out of the backfield, and he's a great running back. So they just add another weapon for Mahomes, and their defense is playing great. They're going to be a snootful, as Steve Savard would say. A snootful. That's a great term from Savvy. But yeah, just, just another day for the Kansas City Chiefs. They're rolling. They are. You know who else is rolling, but it's backwards, is the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, not great. Kind not of great. Uh, falling into uh, uh, an abyss. They were drilled last night <laughs> by the Arizona Cardinals. And it, it, first of all, hey, Whenever, as a kid who grew up watching the St. Louis Cardinals and the Dallas Cowboys got the call every single time, the stupid America's team thing. So in the era that I grew up in, it was part and parcel of life to hate the Dallas Cowboys. All right. Do you think they're America's team anymore? No, well, they aren't America's team I don't anymore. think so either. Does America have a team? Um, in any sport, really. Does America have no, a team? Probably not. I don't think so either. Anyway, many, many moons ago, like 50 years ago, the the St. Louis Cardinals went into Dallas in the first year of Monday Night Football and beat the Cowboys 38 to nothing. Wow. Last night, the Arizona Cardinals go into Dallas and beat the Cowboys 38 to 10. And they did so with some big plays. Second quarter, and the Cardinals exploded a touchdown pass by uh, Kyler Murray. And the game is 14-0 when Murray goes to Christian Kirk. At his own 20, there's the snap, fake handoff, drops back further, got a block from the center, winds up, long pass, oh, he's got Kirk, lunging catch at the 40, and the number's the 30, chase to the 20, the 10, the 5, touchdown, Arizona! 80-yard bomb, what a catch! Christian Kirk takes it to the house, and the Cardinals are stunning the Cowboys 20 to nothing. Kevin Harlan, the best in the business on the call last night here on 101 ESPN. Great call. Great call by Kevin Harlan. But is it really stunning that the Cowboys would get worked? Is it really that stunning? I I think just with the alacrity with which it happened because... Great word. Uh, thank you. They, they scored the three touchdowns within eight minutes. And that that was the stunning part of it. After a scoreless first quarter, boom, to go 21 nothing in the second was pretty cool. But the Cardinals weren't done either. At halftime, it was 21-3. to Murray runs for a one-yard score in the third quarter. And the game was 31-10 with a minute 49 to go. And the Cardinals was trying to run out the clock. And here's how they did it. From the uh, Cardinal 31, Murray is under center. Stop the snap, spins, hands off the Draco. Oh, big hole, 35-40, inside the numbers, 50. Chase to the 40, on the numbers, the 30, to the 20, to the 10, to the 5. It's a touchdown, untouched, galloping downfield, 69 yards. That was beautiful. What a run, and the Kenyon Drake touchdown run makes it now 37-10. to 10. The Cardinals with 149 to go. Wow. <laughs> He's so good. He's fantastic. 38-10 was the final. The Cardinals piling up 438 yards. The first two Cowboys uh, turnovers, both fumbles by Ezekiel Elliott, led to Cardinal touchdowns in the second quarter. And that was devastating. Four turnovers overall by the Cowboys, none by the Cardinals. There's a lot of finger pointing that needs to happen in Dallas because it's not just the absence of Dak Prescott. That's not just the reason why the Cowboys are struggling this season. Defense seems to scuffle a little bit. I, I think that's probably a bigger issue, and it will be going forward than not having Dak Prescott. And think about this now. With that loss last night, Randy, the Cowboys are 2-4. and four. The Eagles, 1-4-1. One, 
Washington one and five, and the Giants are one and five. The NFC East has a collective record of five eighteen and one through Week Six. So even as abysmal as the Cowboys have been, and with all the issues that they have, they probably will still win the division. There is no good reason for the Washington football team at this stage, or the Giants for that matter, to be thinking that they could possibly be in the playoffs. No. But here they are. Here they are. (laughs) By the way, the uh, fewest points in the league, Baltimore Ravens. They've allowed 17.3 per game. The Cowboys have allowed a league-high 36.3 points a game. Almost 20 points a game more than the Ravens have. Wow. Man. Feel for you, Jared. Do you? Yeah, not really. (laughs) Now, across the street tonight from AT&T Stadium, where that game was played, you've got game one of the World Series. Clayton Kershaw will go for L.A., and he'll be opposed by Tyler Glass now of Tampa. Let's start with this. If you're a Rays fan, how or not a Rays fan, a Pirates fan, how bummed out are you that Tyler Glass now is starting? Now, you're a Pirates fan that watched Charlie Mar- Morton close That's things right. down in Game 7 of the ALCS. Now, they turn to another former Pirate for Game 1 of the World Series. And this is after the season that your team just had yeah, as a Pittsburgh oh, Pirates worst, fan. Yeah. Can't be great. Can't be a great feeling. But we can sympathize because we have been watching people who used to wear the Cardinals uniform mm-hmm. do amazing things in the postseason. So do we you, know that feeling. Do you have any confidence at all that Clayton Kershaw is going to be able to give his team a representative <laughs> performance? For a representative, I'm going to go postseason. I'm going to say he allows... Less than four runs, three runs, five innings. Can he give the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, give the Dodgers five innings with less than three runs? I want to say yes so badly. I want to say yes, but history tells me to say no. History tells me to say even if he cruises through the first three that something will happen. And that's such a weird feeling if you're a Dodgers fan to know that this is your guy, the guy who has been so dominant for you for so long, except for typically he's had his moments where he's been great. But typically in the postseason, he just cannot find a way. And I've loved him, Michelle. I've tried to defend him. You can't defend his postseason pedigree and to flip it and localize it. I remember in 2012 as beat up and as bad as Chris Carpenter was when they went back to to San Francisco after the Barry Zito game here and the Giants had beaten the Cardinals to win game five and the Cardinals go back there but still have a chance to win the series and I I figured the baseball Jesus was going to step up and win for the Cardinals even though he had been bad even though he was hurt I thought that in the postseason he was going to be great and by the way his postseason numbers are unbelievable but I had total faith in him even with a, a reasonably healthy and fresh Clayton Kershaw, if I were a Dodger fan, I would not feel that way. As a matter of fact, I would feel I, I would be fearing the worst. And if you're him, how does this not get into your head at this point? Right. You know, I, I know they're professional athletes and stuff, but you're also a human being. And you know what has happened in the past and you know what the the narrative surrounding this start for you is, is that, hey, it's, oh no, it's Kershaw. It's the postseason. We've got this one in the bag. He's probably having nightmares of Matt Adams. I mean, we know that he has had his bad moments in the postseason. The Dodgers haven't won a World Series since 1988. That was the Kirk Gibson home run. It's amazing how much play, by the way. They won that series in five over the A's. That home run one game one it was highly dramatic but man we're still getting a lot of play from a world series that was not that great from from game one but that's the last one they won and the rays have never won a world series so who are you rooting for you know i'm rooting for tampa bay for randy 
for for Randy, for Pete, for Kev, for all of our friends of the show who have joined us from yeah. the Tampa Bay Rays. I, I think we have to. And I have to tell you that when the Cubs won the World Series, not only because they're the Cubs, I hated that they won because that was the best story in sports. Them chasing that championship right. was the best story in sports. It was fun for all of us to watch. The fact that the Dodgers have spent all this money and they've been this close for this long is a great story. And I would like them to lose because I would like the story to continue. Yeah, let's, let's keep that story going. <laughs> World Series game one tonight, and you can hear it here on 101 ESPN. Pre-game at 6.30 with uh, all the ESPN crew. I believe that Boog Shambi is going to be on the call, but maybe it'll be Dan Schulman. One, either, one way or the other, somebody will be calling Game 1 of the World Series tonight here on 101 ESPN. Next up, we want your text. 65780 is the number for the Air Comfort Service text line. We're going to play a little game of What's Better on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> We mentioned that World Series Game 1 is tonight, and as he prepares for Game 1 of the World Series, St. Louis and Pete Fairbanks, the closer for the Rays, will join us at 9.15. And then at 9.30, our first chance to talk to new Blues defenseman Tori Krug. He'll be with us at 9.30, so make sure that you're around for that. That's I know a, you will be. I, I will be here, yes. But that is appointment listening. Yeah, could that be great. 9 a.m. hour. Looking forward to it. All right, a little game of what's better. Get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. Scotty, what do you got for us? All right, we'll start with another text from the 636. What's better, the Cardinals red caps in the road or the navy blue caps? I am a navy blue cap on the road kind of guy. Are you? See, yep. I am a red cap anywhere, anytime type of girl. Now, the only time the Cardinals wear the blue is when the team that they're playing on the road wears a red cap, like the Nationals or the Reds, when they're wearing red caps. Sometimes the Diamondbacks do. But I, I really like the, the look of the navy blue with the gray jersey. If, if I have to pick a uniform outside the classic whites, I love the powder blues. Love the powder blues. I would pick that as well. So fresh. Yeah, they're great. But part of the reason that it's so great to be a Cardinals fan is they have such a classic, iconic uniform. And that includes the red hat, in my my opinion. But they've worn that blue on the road a lot more than just in the last couple of decades. Throughout history, Bob Gibson wore the navy blue cap on the road. So that's iconic, too. I guess. I just prefer the red. I gotcha. Text in two things, and Randy and Michelle will tell you what's better. It's to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. This one from the 618. What's better, Clayton Kershaw in the postseason or the Cowboys defense? Um, oh, wow. This year, I would say Clayton Kershaw in the postseason. Most years, I think I would take the Cowboys defense. But yeah. this year, it's Clayton Kershaw in the postseason. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to possibly take the Cowboys defense this year. So I guess I got to go Clayton Kershaw in the postseason, even though he hasn't been great either. But hopefully he, even, even if the Dodgers lose, I would love for him to have a dominant performance yeah. tonight. Here's the thing. The, the Cowboys defense isn't winning you any games. The only way the Cowboys have won, they've won two, and they've both been on last second kicks, right? Kershaw at least has a 2 one record this postseason. Mm-hmm. So even though we're predicting that he'll fail... <laughs> The Cowboys are just are bad. They're, they're the, that defense is just bad. Yeah, Clayton Kershaw at least gives you a shot. Yeah, this one from the three one four. What's better? And this is a food edition, guys. Cheeseburgers or tacos? Tacos. Oh my! Have you ever met anyone that doesn't like tacos? No, everybody likes tacos. Everybody but likes this tacos. is an exceptionally difficult choice. I I do think that 
a great cheeseburger is better than a taco. A, now, on a regular basis, because it's really hard to screw up a taco, and not all cheeseburgers are great. Pretty much every taco is great. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're asking across the board, I'd go taco. But great cheeseburger against the best taco ever, I'd go cheeseburger. See, I think the best taco beats the best cheeseburger okay. any day of the week. Okay. There's just, maybe it's because they have more flavor in them because of the mm-hmm. things you put on top of the taco. The, the way you assemble a taco, there's endless possibilities. Whereas for a cheeseburger, you pretty much have your your standard, okay, meat, cheese, maybe a little no, tomato, be, lettuce, if, if you have ketchup, perfect, mustard. perfectly seasoned ground beef, perfectly seasoned and grilled perfectly, it's magical. Oh, but have you ever had a dynamite fish taco? I, I would have. take that over a cheeseburger okay. any day. Well, that's good because then we when we have our contest, you can have the tacos and I can have the cheeseburger. There you go. Done. From the 618, what's better, a hole-in-one or an albatross? Albatross. You're two under on the hole. Yeah, but I feel or like if... three under on if, the hole. If I was bragging my buddies, they'd be like, hey, I got an albatross, or I got a hole-in-one. Yeah, I agree. I, a hole-in-one like on a par four is an albatross. You almost had an albatross yesterday, if you would have hit the ball 20 more yards. <sighs> it was close. Yeah. But... A hole-in-one on a par four, that's an albatross. Yeah, that's amazing. But to Scott's point, I think if you text your friends and you say, hey, I got an albatross, they're like, wow, sick. If you got a hole in one, they're like, you're a legend. <laughs> wow. Where? And you have a plaque on the wall. It's just something, even though an albatross is technically better. Yeah. The hole in one just seems to live in infamy. I, I would, Trust go me, I would take either. Okay, yeah. I'm terrible at golf. It, I would take either. Think, think about a two on a par five. It's, it's impressive, uh, but yeah. back to what Michelle's saying, it's just the way that you'd say it it's to your just, friends. It's just the way it sounds, Exactly. Right? Yeah, like, if you get a hole-in-one, you're thinking, should I put this in my social media bio? Should it be well, producer <laughs> of Character and Smallman also got a hole-in-one at Whitmore? But how about this? Got a hole-in-one dot, dot, dot on a par four. Parentheses albatross. <laughs> Hashtag albatross. <laughs> this one from the 314. What's better, a barbecue or a bonfire? Barbecue. You know, barbecue has food. I kind of have a love-hate deal going on with a bonfire. I love s'mores. I love fall. I love the concept of a bonfire. I hate when you get home, how your hair and all your clothes smell like smoke, and then you immediately have to take a shower when you get home. You have to throw your clothes in the wash, and then you wake up, and there's still kind of that stench going on, and you're like, man, that was a blast last night. Had fun with my friends, but this smell is a problem. And you don't get that at a barbecue. To me, it just comes down to the real food that you're getting at a barbecue as opposed to the s'mores at a bonfire. I don't know. S'mores are pretty Because good. I am, for the most part, when I'm not behind a microphone, I am kind of antisocial. So I don't <laughs> want to go to some place where it's just warm and people are talking. I want to go someplace where it's warm outside and people are eating. Also, barbecues typically when it's warm outside, yep. so you're just relaxing. The thing also about, see, this is the thing about bonfires. A lot of pros, a lot of cons. When you're around the fire, it can either get too hot or when you step away from the yep. fire, it's too cold. Yep, great or, point. Or if you get smoke in your eyes, you're, you're like, oh, oh you yeah. just cover them and yeah. it burns. Also, typically you're in the middle of nowhere and then when you're walking to try to find your car, it's really dark because mm-hmm. you don't have the illumination <laughs> of the fire. You know, there's a lot of hazards with the bonfire. So I think we could all agree here that it's a barbecue. Yeah, we're team barbecue. <laughs> we're all barbecuing. This one from the 507. What's better, the Cardinals' chances of getting a middle-of-the-lineup bat or the Blues acquiring a top-six forward? Blues acquiring a top-six forward. I agree. 
and Doug Armstrong's aggressive, and yeah. he pulls rabbits out of his hat all the time. So I would not be surprised if he figured something out. Do I, I think they will? Probably not. But I it would it would surprise me less if the Blues made that move as opposed to the Cardinals making yeah. that move. Uh, until the Cardinals do it, I think that their middle of the order bat is going to wind up being Tyler O'Neill. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for what's better from the 636. What's better, the Astros being swept or coming back from 3-0 and then losing in Game 7? Heartbreak, coming back from 3-0 and losing. Yeah. Although those three wins apparently did make the Astros fans feel pretty good about the fact that their team was really good rather than cheaters. How about Jeff? Did you see the Jeff Luno story? Oh, yeah. We should I, talk about that I know today. nothing. I, I'm telling you. What? I didn't do it. Hire me. Yeah. Unbelievable. From the 314, what's better, car- caramel apples with or without peanuts? I'm going to go uh, I'm gonna go Team Scotty here. I'm going to go without peanuts. Yeah, me too. It's just caramel apples again. Delicious. But is the juice worth the squeeze? Especially if it's on the stick. Sometimes hard to eat. Messy. Yeah, I think that it, you know? it's a uh, it's just an occasional taste. Not an acquired taste, but an occasional taste. I might have a caramel apple every two or three years. And, Same. Yeah, they're and maybe they're good, maybe they're not. And I I don't know about like buying a caramel apple at Schnooks. I, I I would. I know they'd be great. Yeah, they'd be excellent. But if you are gonna go between making caramel apples at home or buying, I think it's much more satisfying to to make them at home. I've never made them at home. Oh yeah, you just melt caramels. It's it, it dip the apple right in there. Yeah, it, it's pretty good. Yeah. So. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for what's better. What's better, an iPhone or a BlackBerry? Michelle, I have never owned an iPhone, but everybody else in my family has iPhones. I know you're an iPhone devotee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I used to have a BlackBerry, and I loved it. I'm so bummed that they went out of business because I loved my BlackBerry. I would go BlackBerry. As a matter of fact, I've told you, I still have a BlackBerry that works, and I advanced to the smartphone. But I've really seriously been thinking about going back to the BlackBerry so that I can get off the social media and just have a phone that I can text and make phone calls with. And that would pretty much be it. You could BBM people. Yeah. Um, So I'm the opposite of you, Randy. I've never had a BlackBerry. I had a flip phone and then I had a trio. Do you remember the Mm -hmm. trios? Oh, yeah. With the little... Pointer deal, whatever that, I forget what that's called. Not the wand. What's it called? Stylus. Stylus. I'd had a stylus. Oh, yeah. Um, Thought that that was very cool. And then went to the iPhone. So I would have to go iPhone simply because I've never had a BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. And I think now after texting on a screen, it would be difficult to go back to the BlackBerry keyboard for me. That might be hard with your thumbs. I like the keyboard actually better because I always inevitably, when I like try to make a space, I hit N or something. Uh, so from that standpoint, I like the BlackBerry better. And I, I do think that it would be really hard because I, I have like necessary apps on my phone. Like I, I have that safe driving discount app that you have to have on your phone mm-hmm. uh, when you're driving. So uh, you can't do that unless you have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. So a smartphone is almost a necessity with uh, for a lot of things like ESPN.com and all of that stuff or the yeah, ESPN you, app. You want to stream us on 101 ESPN? One, the app right, is free. On, on the app, yeah. you don't get that on a BlackBerry. No, so don't. I wish BlackBerry would have been able to stick around long enough to advance, but yeah. they didn't. Last one from the 314. What's better, Randy Rosarena's postseason numbers or Randy Carricker's carrot cake? Ooh. I'm going to go with Randy Rosarena's 
postseason numbers. You can get a great carrot cake elsewhere. The Cardinals clearly couldn't get Randy Rosarena's numbers anywhere. Yeah, but I'll say this. Randy Rosarena is doing this in a vacuum, okay? Give it to me consistently. Your carrot cake, Randy, any time of year, it's going to be dominant. It's going to be elite. I don't care if it's spring. I don't care if it's the hot days, the dog days of July. I don't care if it's fall in October. Randy Rosarena, give it to me consistently, and then I'll pick you. But I'm picking your carrot cake. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Scotty. You got it. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Coming up, we know Clayton Kershaw is going to the Hall of Fame. What would you rather have? A clear-cut Hall of Famer that kind of struggles in the postseason or a guy that might not make the Hall of Fame but you know is going to be dominant in the postseason? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Michelle, during his career, Chris Carpenter with the Cardinals and Toronto had, and I'll just give you his Cardinal numbers because that was the only time that he was in the postseason. He was actually pretty much the same pitcher postseason and regular season. 683 winning percentage with a 3.07 ERA during the regular season. Then once he got to the postseason, he was a 714 winning percentage with an earned run average of three. The the guy I want, guys I want to focus on are primarily for this for what we're doing here, this uh, segment that we're doing, mm-hmm. I want to do Kurt Schilling against Clayton Kershaw. Because the question is, would you rather have a guy like Schilling, who's a borderline Hall of Famer, he may or may not make the Hall of Fame, during his regular seasons, he was a 597 winning percentage pitcher with a 3.46 ERA, 216 and 146, 597 winning percentage with a 3. uh, 3.46 earned run average. You get to the postseason for Schilling, an 846 winning percentage, 11 and 2 with a 2.23. So he was pretty darn good, but not great during the regular season. But he was spectacular during the postseason. So the question would be would you rather have a guy that does that, or would you rather have the guy that gets you to the playoffs? And maybe somebody else has to pick up the slack once you get to the playoffs. Kershaw. During the regular season, a 697 winning percentage and a 2.43 earned run average. But then you get to the postseason, and he's 11 and 12, a 478 winning percentage with a 4.31. So, would you rather have you that guy that year in and year out is going to get you to the playoffs, but then the once you get to the postseason, it's dicey? Or would you rather have that guy that contributes a lot, but isn't the horse that gets you to the postseason? But man, once you get to the postseason, you know he's going to be there for you. I'm taking the postseason performer all day, every day. And especially if we're looking at Kurt Schilling. I mean, this is a guy who has three World Series championships. He's a World Series MVP and an NLCS MVP. This is a guy who has collected some hardware. And it takes a team collective over a typical baseball season. It's not going to be one pitcher that's really going to carry you throughout the baseball season. It's going to have to be more of of a team effort to get you to the postseason. But as we know in the postseason, all we need is one person to turn it on and be absolutely dominant for you. And why can't it be somebody like a pitcher, like like Kurt Schilling? 
to me, I would rather go into a, a postseason play knowing that the guy that I have with the ball is a guy that I can rely on and having my team know that they can rely on him to go out there and be dominant. Because you play to win the game, Randy. You play to win a World Series. And I would rather, whether I'm the player, whether I'm the general manager, whether I'm a fan, always take the guy who I know when the lights are brightest and when the pressure is on can go out there and perform. I love that guy. And those guys, obviously, they are the the memorable players. But a guy like Schilling, when he went to Arizona, he had Randy Johnson. And they were both great, but Johnson was the number one number one. When he was in Boston, obviously he had Pedro, and Pedro was the number one, number one. Taking nothing away from Schilling when he was with Philadelphia, but even that world championship year, he was 16-7 and with a 4.02 during the regular season. They had a group of pitchers that helped them get to the postseason. My point would be that I would rather take my chances on that guy that I know can get me to the postseason that is going to carry me, that's going to... Uh, I have 162 games. That guy that's going to give me 20 or 21 or 22 wins, and then if I wind up with a Jeff Supon, I'll take that guy for my postseason. I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to cobble together pitching in the postseason, and we're seeing it with... Tampa now. They they don't have guys that go deep into games, but you have a guy that can give you three, four, five, hopefully six innings, and you take your chances with that guy. Do you think if the Dodgers, if you set them down and you said, hey, I'm going to ask you this question, and no one will ever know the answer. If you said to them, what would you rather have? A guy like Clayton Kershaw, who's been great for you, but can't get it done in the postseason, or a guy who is okay in the regular season, but you know is going to carry you to a World Series championship in the postseason. Because here's a Dodgers team who has been right there this entire time. And one of the guys that is supposed to be the leaders of this team to get them them to this point has been a hindrance for them. And I wonder if they're not looking at the collection of people that they have and they're saying, I, if no one knew because they love Clayton Kershaw, that they would not switch out a shilling for a Kershaw in this moment right now. But my question would be to them, You've had some close calls. Who, over the course of these last eight years, would you have had as your number one starting pitcher to get you to those points where you hopefully can get the great performance? The last several years, they've been dominant. They haven't needed a guy like Kershaw because they've spent so much elsewhere on their roster. But Kershaw is that difference between winning by one or two games and making the postseason or not being there at all for that big-time guy, that big-time postseason guy to perform. He can also be the difference between winning the World Series by one or two games. And Kershaw has been that guy. My point is I would rather take my chances with the guy where he's going to get me to the postseason, and then I'll rely on other people to try to get... And and they have tried and failed. Rich Hill, they brought him in to try to be a postseason guy, and it hasn't worked out. They've tried some other guys. But obviously, in a perfect world, you love to have Pedro Martinez, who gets you to the postseason and then is brilliant during the postseason. But if if I'm going to have one or the other, I'm going to have that guy that is going to help me get there and then I'm going to take my chances. I I totally get, I love having the guy that can do it in the postseason. But when you look at what Schilling specifically did, he did it with dominant teams. The Diamondbacks pretty much bought that team that won in 2001. And and I believe most, if not all of their starting eight were free agents. And then they brought Schilling back. 
uh, to, well, they, they brought him in, or not Schilling, uh, Randy Johnson, but they, they had a really, really, really dominant team. And then Boston, we know about Boston in 2004, where he was great and he had the bloody sock and everything, but he also had... Uh, people like Pedro and Derek Lowe. Derek Lowe's the guy that pitched on two days rest and, and won for that team in 2004 in the LCS. So I, I just think I'd go that direction. I also think when you look at great players and when their careers are all said and done and you're reflecting back on it, you're potentially talking Hall of Fame, et cetera. Let's say that Clayton Kershaw never wins a World Series. Clayton, Clayton Kershaw, Kershaw never, never wins, wins a World, World Series. Series. How many people will look at his career and say, he was great, but how many people in our discussions about Mike Trout right now, he's great, Mm -hmm. but when you don't have that postseason success, you have a major hole in your resume. You always have something that people are going to hold against you. Whereas if you're a guy like Kurt Schilling and you've gone out there and you've done it, they they say that's what people will remember you by, is he was a great postseason performer. People won't say, oh, yeah, but his regular season, they're going to be like, bloody sock. This is the moment. This is what we remember him by. Whereas the Trouts and Kershaws of the world, we say they're great, but. That's the one reason that Kurt Schilling might make the Hall of Fame is because of his postseason performance. That being said, when you look at, uh, I guess the question is this, and, and this goes back to our philosophies. You like the championships, I like the journey. Would <laughs> would I take the careers of Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, who are both under 500 in the postseason, over Kurt Schilling? There's no doubt about it. I, I would take those guys, even though they're under 500 postseason performers. Hey, let's just, we can go apples to apples here. Uh, it's not fair either, because Smoltz, again, like Pedro, was great in, he was transcendent in the postseason, Smoltz was, and spectacular during the regular season. But to to a guy like Schilling, would I rather have had for a decade of the 90s Glavin or Maddox or Kurt Schilling? I would have taken Glavin or Maddox. Don't tell me about the labor, Randy. Show me the baby. <laughs> there you go. I know. Show me the baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's an interesting question. Uh, and we get a couple of texts. What about Mad Bum? Never on great te- teams and never that dominant in the regular season. And you're exactly right. But... And not going to make the Hall of Fame, but a guy that they were able to lean on from the time he was 20 years old in the postseason. Ken from the 314 says, I think you need to go with Clayton Kershaw because you have to get to the playoffs to be worried about the World Series. That's my point, is I want to have that dominant regular season performer where I I can count on that guy all the time. Here's another one from the 309. John Lester comes to mind. Decent regular season, but great postseason. Mm -hmm. And he says, give me that all day. Rings are a beautiful thing. Yes, they are. Yeah. But again, would he have had a great postseason resume if he never pitched in the postseason? If you're a pitcher, would you rather have the Hall of Fame career and you had an amazing regular season year in and year out, but no championship or be a guy who had a so-so regular season year in and year out, but was dominant in the postseason and you had the hardware to show for it? If I was on a team that could win championships and I was okay, I I would take the championships, definitely. Me too. But I think there are a lot of people, uh, I think if you talk to Brad Thompson, he would, nah, he probably wouldn't trade his World Series for a Hall of Fame career. But I think there are a lot of people that would trade, especially because of the financial windfall that you get from being great, would trade the championships and being okay for being a great Hall of Famer. Not me. Good for you. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service. Text line 65780. We also always welcome 
your mic drops with the Rhino Shield mic drop feature on the 101 ESPN app that you can use with uh, an iPhone or an Android, but not a BlackBerry. So if you have a BlackBerry, <laughs> and by the way, there is somebody texted said there yeah. is a BlackBerry smartphone, but it looks like they're very difficult to find. I don't think that like T-Mobile or Verizon or AT&T, I don't think any of those people are carrying I don't think, the BlackBerry smartphone at the moment. Next up, get your text in to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. We've got Take It or Leave It coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. If you would like to participate in the fight at 8.30, you can send us a text right now with your name and the word fight. Just send that to 65780. Scotty will pick a contestant, and we will have the fight coming your way at 8.30. Right now, we have Take It or Leave It, Michelle, Randy, Scotty, you, and you have to participate. This is an interactive show, after all. You have to, hey, you're the reason we do it, so you might as well play, right? Michelle, last night the Chiefs beat the Bills 26-17. to Kansas City ran the ball 46 times, and Patrick Mahomes only threw it 26 times. Take it or leave it, the Chiefs don't need Patrick Mahomes to win. <laughs> wow, that's a tricky one. Um, I'm going to leave it because even though they're capable of winning other ways, I still think he is such a contributing factor to their success that I'm not going to say if you removed him from the equation totally that I think they could win every game. I'm going to take it as well. Keyshawn Johnson said this morning, oh, you, if you just run the ball and play defense, you can win in the NFL. No, you need a quarterback and you need a guy to throw you to a victory now and then. Now and then you can win with running and playing defense, but this is a quarterback passing driven league and they can't win without Patrick Mahomes. Okay, Randy. So we were talking last segment about players who, who would you rather have a big postseason performer or a guy who's, who can't get it done in the postseason, but is dominant in the regular season. Take it or leave it until you see Mike Trout. On the postseason stage, do something spectacular and dominant. You will always think Albert Pujols has a better career than him. I'm going to leave it on those grounds. I think Albert had a better first eight, nine years than Trout, with or without the postseason. But I'm not going to blame Trout for their not having pitching in Anaheim and not making the postseason. So I'm going to have to leave that on those particular grounds. Even if it's not his fault, though, as we've seen with Clayton Kershaw, don't you think until he either gets the opportunity to prove it on that stage, whether it's his fault or not, that it's an incomplete resume? I think it's different with a pitcher because it's all in your hands when you're a pitcher. And there are a lot of ancillary factors that go into play when you're a position player, including the pitching, which they have not had. And the surrounding lineup really hasn't been great for him either. For example, if Mike Trout were on the Yankees, do you have any doubt that he would be in the postseason? No. So that's what I'm looking at. And by the way, if if Clayton Kershaw were on the Yankees, I could see him losing postseason games. But we don't know what Mike Trout could get on the Yankees and go completely cold and stagnant during the postseason. We don't know. That's why I'm leaving it under these grounds. And and by the way, just leaving the... To make it fair, I'll leave the postseasons out of it. And Albert, to me, is still better mm-hmm. over from, to this stage of their careers than Trout. And then you add in the postseason, then that, that Albert takes even another step. 
Scotty, what do you got for us? Air Comfort Service text line 65780 for take it or leave it from the 314. Take it or leave it. Molina will be back with the Cardinals, but they will lose Wong and Wayno. Wayno because of broadcasting. Mm. I'll take that. That's a hot take. I'm going to take that. That is a hot take. And it's Tuesday, not Thursday. Yeah. I am going to leave it because... As much as I know Yadier Molina is beloved in that organization and as, as much as I know that he dictates a lot of things, I think that if they had to choose from a monetary standpoint, they would go with a younger Colton Wong. But I do think Wayno might be leaning broadcasting. I don't know. But in, in this scenario. For both of you, on opening day of 2022, Wainwright, Wong, Carpenter, Fowler, and Molina are all not with the Cardinals. Wainwright... Wong, Carpenter, Molina, Fowler. All not with the Cardinals. I'm going to leave it. Uh, opening day of 2022. Oh, 2022. Then yeah, take it. Take it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This one from the 636. Take it or leave it. It is the Las Vegas Raiders. They will make the playoffs their first year in Las Vegas. I'll take it. I'll take it too. So uh, It's still weird though for me to call them the Las Vegas Raiders. Yeah, it is kind of weird. I, I, I am a fan of Chucky. <laughs> Are you? Yeah, I, I, I've always liked Sean Gruden. He's he's pretty good. And let's see, right now they're three and two. I don't believe the Browns are real at four and two. So yeah, I, I like their chances, and they aren't going to win the division because of Kansas City. But I think they'll sneak in with the last wild card. This one comes from the six three six. Take it or leave it. We will not see full capacity of fans in MLB parks until after this year's All Star break. I'll take that. I'll take that, too. Take it or leave it. Before the All-Star break, we will see some fans. I'm going to take that, too. As a matter of fact, I believe that we'll see fans on opening day because of the way that football teams are doing it. So Alabama's really doing it, but they are doing it with social distancing or masks. But if you look at the way that the Pittsburgh Steelers are doing it, it's a really great setup. And there's no reason that you couldn't do it here. And then hopefully we'll have a vaccine that's on the fast track by... February, March, and maybe you can get more people vaccinated and into ballparks by after the All-Star break. Not full, but maybe by the end of the season, hopefully. That'd be great. That'd be great. This one from the 636, take it or leave it, the Blues getting Ryan O'Reilly was the best transaction for the Blues this decade. Gotta take that. He was the piece that helped them get the coveted championship. Yeah. So One the, of them. And that was actually last decade, right? Because it happened in nine, in 18. They the, they, they made that trade in 18. Is this a new decade? No, I think it's not until the end of this year. Okay, but right? I'll still go with that. Texas, 65780. I think it's not <laughs> until the end of this year, technically, that it starts. I, I thought decade. it was zero zero through 9. That's what I thought. And then I think that we had said something on the air heading into New Year's Eve about, oh, this the end of this well, decade. And people were like, no, 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 it's not. Here's the thing. So if I don't really know. You don't start in year zero, right? You start, the, the world started in year one, right? So you have the first decade ever was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, ten. So zero, zero theoretically should be the end of the decade, I think. Hold on. Research is on it. Okay. what? Uh, and our research department is vast and overwhelming. So we'll have that answer in moments. That being said, even if it was last, de- well, either way, it would have to be last decade. Or no, this, I guess if it ends with the end of 2020, either way, it's going to be be the best acquisition that they have had. And that, yeah, because they got Tarasenko before that. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to take it. 
Any word from our research department yet? Reading a lot. Okay. Okay, for from this website, Farmer's Almanac. That's important. That's a good one. They're okay. classic. Yeah, that, that website has been around since before websites. It says, as you think about New Year's resolution, here's one we should all make together. Resolve to insist that decades begin with the year ending in the numeral one God, and finish good. with a zero. For a decade to begin, we must start with the year ending with one, 2021, and finish with 10. Or so far as... Cr- Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So basically, that's it. Okay. And, so it ends, and with, ends with zero. So this is the end of our decade, right? This year, I mean, we're creeping close. So we have, we just came up with a bunch of material for December. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because best of the decade is coming your way on Character and Smallman. <laughs> best, of, best of the decade and the worst of 2020. <laughs> this one comes from the 314. Take it or leave it. Mike McCarthy is out in Dallas after one year. Leave and the it. Cowboys will never be great until Jerry is gone. Think about how long they hung on to Jason Garrett. And it's yeah. not his fault. Right. You know, he's he's on the scene. He's an offensive coach. Yeah, yeah. but I, Jason Garrett was on the hot seat from the second that he got there, and right. they hung on to him for years. There's no way they would give up on a coach like Mike McCarthy that quickly. I think the only way that happens is if Lincoln Riley comes to them and says, hey, I'll take your job. I think that's the only way. Or maybe Urban Meyer. That's it. What that, about Dabo? Yeah, he'd never come there and say. If he would come there and say, yeah. yes. If he came there, and do you think they would... I, I don't know if Jerry would pay a coach that much. I don't think he would. Hmm. I think he, that ended with Parcells, paying coaches a lot of money. Thank you, Scotty. You got it. And thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. Coming up, our fresh take, which team, Dodgers or Rays, is better suited right now to win four games before the other team does? It's coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> It is coming up on 8.04 in 3, 2, 1, woof. 8.04, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Carriker and Smallman. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And as we get ready to start World Series 2020 tonight in Arlington, Texas, you look at a team that won 40 games in the Rays, a team that won 43 in the Dodgers, and you would think, Michelle, that it would be difficult to pick a winner. But when you look at the rosters, when you look at the odds, right now the Dodgers are minus 200 and the Rays are plus 165. So to win $100 on the Dodgers, you'd have to pay $200. To, to win, otherwise you lose the 200. And if you bet 100 on the Rays and they win, you'd get 165 back. The odds are stacked way in favor of the Dodgers. I give the Rays a chance here simply because I don't think that even though the Dodgers do have really good depth in the starting rotation, I think the Rays' depth in the bullpen can make a huge difference in this game. And the fact that the Dodgers haven't seen them yet, I think gives the Rays an advantage for the first couple of games. It's really hard to pick against the Dodgers and their complete team. It really is. However, doing some of these comparisons last night, I really do like the way that the Rays' pitching, uh, especially in their rotation, lines up against LA. Now, you have the questions about Clayton Kershaw, not only him in the postseason, but his back. You have Walker Buehler with the blisters. But when you think about it, too, this has been a really fast and furious postseason, and the Rays got that extra day of rest, right? which could be huge for them. Plus, I just, I really like their starting pitching, and, and I, I just can't 
envision that Randy Rosarena is going to slow down. Now, I don't know if they're going to pitch to him. I don't know what their attack is going to be against him. But I think if he stays hot, I really like the Rays' chances. The one issue that the Rays have is that aside from a Rosarena and to an extent G-Man Choi, nobody else is really hitting no. for them. That's true. And they're very Cardinal-esque in that regard. I think that's a, 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 an issue that they have to solve is that they have to get some other people going. They, they need to get Adamas hitting. Uh, they, I know they have great platoon players, but they, they just need to get other people going. Uh, Zanino on a, on a more regular basis would work to their advantage. I think that'll be an issue, too, because you know that the Dodgers are going to hit. So Rosa ran in the ALCS, hit 321. The rest of the A's combined, 183. Yeah. So that is a problem for them. That's a problem. And, and with the Dodgers pitching, Clayton Kershaw notwithstanding, you would think that that would be something that the Rays would run into. So at the end of the day, I'm going to pick the Dodgers to win this series in six. By the way, I think it would be even more diverse. It would be a bigger Dodger win if we had home field advantage. And I know that Tampa Bay people would show up. But I wonder how many Tampa Bay people would show up that were Dodger fans for a series if it were to be played in both cities? That's a great question. It would be overwhelming Dodger fans, though. Overwhelmingly Dodger fans. I I do believe that home field would benefit the Dodgers, but the Dodgers are just a better team, and it's time for them to make it happen. And I do believe that the difference is going to be the guy that they got to make the difference, Mookie Betts. Uh, He's my pick as World Series MVP. He's been sensational, hasn't he? I think that this is going to be a back-and-forth series. I expect it to go to seven, but I think ultimately this is the season the Dodgers get it done, that they prevail. And I hate to say that. I want it to be the Rays. I hope that we're both wrong. But I just, when I when I look at this roster, and I, and when I look at the, the way that they just came into this, all the momentum that they have, how they're feeling good, how they can fight back, how you can never count them out, even, even with the question marks surrounding some of their pitching and with Clayton Kershaw, I think the Dodgers take it. If Tampa Bay is going to be able to pull off a victory, there are a couple of things that they're going to have to do. One of them is obviously pitch exceptionally well, and that will include getting great work out of their bullpen. That's another problem that they have here. Fortunately for them, they do have days off, but that entire group, because the Dodgers, once they see a pitcher for a second or third time, they pummel that pitcher, so the bullpen is going to have to be great. But the other thing that we mentioned is just getting something other than production out of a Rosarena, whether that is Margot, who had a pretty good has had a pretty good postseason. G-Man Choi, uh, Hunter Renfro can be better. He doesn't play all the time. Kiermaier has been bad. And Adamas has been, relative to what you'd expect Willie Adamas to be, he's hit 132 in the postseason, and he's only got a 520 OPS. He needs to be way better than what he's been. What do you think the Dodgers' approach is going to be for a Rose Arena? Don't let him beat you. If there's a runner on in scoring position, certainly don't pitch to him. But if you don't have to pitch him, never pitch to him with a base open and just work around him because you don't have to work to anybody else. Whoever is hitting fourth, we know Rosarena is going to hit third. Whoever is hitting fourth, just don't pitch to him. Yeah, listen to the good people of St. Louis when we say don't let one guy beat you in the World Series. And I do think one of the things that hasn't happened so far in the American League playoffs is that they haven't gotten it. Nobody's made a Rosarena chase. He's hit a lot of balls right down the middle and on the plate. If you throw him pitches off the plate, I think, especially with nobody else hitting, I think he'll try to expand that zone and start swinging at pitches that there's no way he can do anything with them. I can't wait to watch. 
No, it's going to be fun. 6.30 tonight here on 101 ESPN. I also believe, by the way, as great as the Rays' defense is, if defense is going to make a difference in this series, I think that favors the Dodgers, too, because we saw what Bellinger and Betts did outfield-wise in the American League. Uh, They are getting great work, obviously, from the middle of their infield in L.A., and Seager's playing great. So as great as the Rays play defensively, and they weren't that great in the ALCS, they made some errors. I, I think that the defense favors the Dodgers, too. I really don't, aside from the bullpens, I don't see a place where I, I say the Rays are clearly better than the Dodgers. And yeah. the bullpen might be the difference. But starting pitching, I, I say it's six and one, a half dozen of the other. Offense, I'll take the Dodgers. Defense, I'll take the Dodgers. But maybe because they had some areas to improve on defense in the ALCS, they take that step forward and they lock it down in the hey. World Series, Randy. There, there's an area to improve. An opportunity. Yeah, 2006, the Tigers were better in every area than the Cardinals. They were better defensively. They were better offensively. They had a better rotation. They had a more established bullpen. But their pitchers made five errors and threw the series away in five to the Cardinals. USA Today, Bob Nightingale, our friend, picked the Tigers to win that series in three. A best of seven where you have to win four. He said Tigers win it in three. That's how dominant the Tigers were perceived to be. So, as we know, in baseball, anything can happen. Hey, last year, Game 7, Dodger, uh, Astros and Nationals, and Garrett Cole doesn't pitch. How does that happen? No, you never see him in the game. So, anything can happen. Okay, so, usually if you win the first game of the World Series, 64% roughly of the time they say you go on to win the series. If the Rays win Game 1 tonight, do you still like the Dodgers? I do. Even if Clayton Kershaw has a terrible performance tonight, the Rays absolutely dominate. You're still picking the Dodgers. I will still pick the Dodgers. And I'm picking the Dodgers in six. Okay. There you go. That is today's Fresh Take here on 101 ESPN. Coming up, what should the Cardinals' identity be moving forward? We know what it is now. They can pitch and not hit. But what should that identity be? Is it going to be based on run suppression or... Do they build an offense somehow? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. With Michelle, I'm Randy. It's 101 ESPN. And we do have the fight coming up at the bottom of the hour. And... Coming up in the 9 o'clock hour, we're going to be busy. Pete Fairbanks, the Tampa closer from Webster Groves and Mizzou, will join us at 9.15. And then at 9.30, new Blues defenseman Tori Krug. Michelle, a lot of talk about the identity of the Cardinals because it lacks power. The Cardinals hit 51 home runs this year, which was far and away the lowest in Major League Baseball, six fewer than any other team in the 60 games. And when we talk about the identity of this ball club moving forward, I think one thing that we should come to grips with is that it's not going to be a power-hitting team. It's going to be a team that is based on run suppression, on pitching and defense first and foremost, and playing good, solid, fundamental baseball, which would include good base running. But I don't see the Cardinals going out and getting a home run hitter, and I don't see the Cardinals developing, at least from what I see in the system right now, a home run hitter. So are they going to go from a team 
that was last in the league in home runs to first in the league in home runs, I don't see that happening and that being part of their identity. Yeah, if we were having a conversation with someone who'd never watched baseball and we were trying to convince them to be a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals and they said, describe your team, we would say, okay, great pitching, a lot of pitching depth, depth, strong defense. And I think my other thing that I would throw in there as far as an identity for this current team is this is a mentally tough team. Everything that they had to endure this past season and everything they were able to overcome to get to the postseason. This is a a team that is mentally with it. They're mentally tough. But other than that, I can't really think of any sort of identifying factor for this collective team. Even last night I was thinking about it. Who's the face of this team? It's still Adam Wainwright and Yadier Mm -hmm. Molina. And if they decide to move on because of one reason or another this season, then I think you're starting to have some real questions. Okay, what is the identity of this team? And when you try to identify that, we know what the identity of the teams in the 80s were and pretty much what the Tampa Bay Rays are right now. But if you have an infield of what we project to be Nolan Gorman and Paul DeYoung and Tommy Edmond and Paul Goldschmidt and an outfield that includes Carlson and Bader and or O'Neill or Thomas or down the, low, down the line maybe a, a, a John Torres – there isn't going to be a great deal of speed and athleticism. So I don't see that as being there. Let's just try to drill down on what their offensive identity is going to be. I don't see there being a tremendous amount of speed and athleticism. I already said I don't see there of any of those guys that I look at in my starting eight. Maybe Tyler O'Neill will turn into a power hitter, but is he, is he going to be a great power hitter or is he going to be Rob Deere or Chris Carter? Is he going to be that guy who hits 198 and hits 28 or 30 or 32 home runs. That doesn't do much for me. By the way, he's also very athletic, but he's never going to steal a bunch of bases. So I I don't know if that is going to be part of it. Manufacturing runs, I don't think power is. So how are they going to score runs? That's going to be my question. We know that your team identity is going to be pitching and run suppression. But if you want to build an offensive identity, Mm -hmm. how do the Cardinals do that? That's a great question. And even, you know, Paul Goldschmidt's going to give you power mm-hmm. from time to time. He, you know he's going to consistently produce for you. So let's just remove but him. he's also going to be 33. That's true. But even let's just kind of remove yeah. him from the equation because one guy is not going to make the identity of your entire offense. But even if Tyler O'Neill did ascend to that and he becomes a power hitter, do you really think the rest of the group is going to be able to do that? So I still don't even think one person getting to that level is going to make the identity of this offense. And that's where I think the problem kind of lies is that you have so many question marks about so many different guys and the question marks are in different places. So even if you were able to answer those questions, it's still not one collective identity. I do think with Wong here especially that they have guys capable of getting on base and hopefully Tommy Edmond will get better at that facet of the game. But if you do have a guy like O'Neill pop up as a number five hitter and magically you get a number four hitter, then you've got something. Now, my opinion, I know Dylan Carlson hit fourth during the playoffs, but I think Dylan Carlson serves them best as a number two hitter. Right. So if you have Wong and Carlson up top and those guys can get on base and set the table for Goldschmidt, Mr. X, and hopefully uh, uh, 
rising Tyler O'Neill, then you've got something. But that Mr. X in the four hole is what prevents you from having a real team identity on offense. Do you remember back in the day ESPN Magazine had the player X column? Yep. Remember that? It was an unidentified player that would write things and everybody would guess who it was. That When you say Mr. X, I'm thinking player X. Like, who is the mystery guy mm-hmm. that they're going to get? But how much of what they're projecting their offensive identity to be is on the shoulders of Dylan Carlson. It is a lot because he is a a guy with a lot of tools. I don't know what he's going to be in terms of being a power hitter. People don't expect him to be a 35 home run guy, but you never know. So hopefully he'll wind up being that impact guy. If you have two impact hitters rather than one, you're much better off. If you have three impact hitters, then you have a chance of winning. Now, the other thing the Cardinals could do, and they kind of have given up a a large chunk of this with the deals that they've made, but if you could get have a philosophy where you have athletic guys that get on base— Teams in baseball don't defend the run very well anymore. So if you wanted to put together a whitey ball team, 2020 the, or 2019, the Cardinals led the league in stolen bases. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to build a whitey ball type team, you would need the athleticism to do that. Giving up on guys like a Rosarena and Pham doesn't help you in that regard because those are guys that I think Tommy Pham still leads the all of baseball in stolen bases this postseason. So when you're trading away that athleticism, that really takes away. I, as much as we see Carlson as a speedster, he's a speedster on the bases, but he's not a base stealer. Harrison Bader, if he would get on base, is not a base stealer. You need to put pressure if you want to be that type of team on the defense. And I think the Cardinals have moved away from that, that the, the possibility of that kind of identity with the people that they've traded. If you ask the Cardinals what their offensive identity is right now, what do you think their answer would be? I believe that they would say their goal is to to grind, to make pitchers work, and then hope that the pitcher makes a mistake. To take a lot of pitches, to get on base. Essentially, they wouldn't say it this way. I would to play a boring brand of baseball and hope that you can get a couple of runners on and that somebody runs into a three-run homer. Yeah, wouldn't you rather go up there feeling like the hitter is always going to beat the pitcher rather than praying that they make a mistake and you yeah. can capitalize on it? Yeah. And I do believe that if we reach a point where we have an electric or electronic strike zone and teams are forced to swing the bat and they can't walk as much because the strike zone is the real strike zone, then I think teams with the approach the Cardinals have will be in trouble. So if we're talking about a boring approach, fans, it's been so interesting this past these past two years, because the Cardinals have made the postseason these past mm-hmm. two years. But I don't know about you. I can't remember a time when we're reading the text line or you're talking to people out and about that have been this down on Cardinals baseball in a time when they generally have had success. So, And I wonder if it's because of the lack of excitement or sizzle or a player to be excited about or rally around. And even what we saw to Dylan Carlson this year, especially when he came back up, he showed some stuff in the postseason that got people really excited. And I still don't even think that was enough to get a lot of people excited about this team. When I tune in to watch a game on TV, this is me, and I like winning at the end of the day, but when I start watching at 7 o'clock, I want to be excited. I want to be enthralled. And so many times, even if they win, it's not exciting or enthralling. It's not a, a really dramatic, compelling or dramatic <laughs> style of play that they employ. And the so we're trying to talk about an identity here. I don't even see players in their system on the horizon that 
to me, play what I think is a compelling or enthralling type of baseball. In the mid-2000s, you had the MV3. Mm-hmm. In, the, uh, in the early 2000s, you had McGuire at the end of his run. That was compelling and enthralling, even though it didn't lead to playoffs. Obviously, the, the time before that where they had success was the Whitey Ball era. I think we're talking about an identity. I think this is a team that lacks an identity. I think that's the problem. If if your identity and our perception, my perception at least, is of a team that likes to walk, I don't think that that's a very exciting way to play. And I keep thinking about the fan sentiment and if Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina are removed from that equation, what will be the most exciting thing for Cardinals fans heading into the 2021 season? That you're going to have a regular season of baseball? That maybe Dylan Carlson will blossom into something? The consistent production from Paul Goldschmidt? All those things are great, but it's not in in an ADD world where we Mm -hmm. have a buffet of things at our disposal all the time. Things to distract us, and we can choose our entertainment all the time. And in a time where baseball, coming off this great postseason, is going to really need to capture what they've been able to create here into this next season. I just wonder about the Cardinals, and I wonder how they're going to generate that excitement from fans, or if we just live in a place where it's so ingrained in us that even if we think it's boring, we're going to show up, we're going to tune in because we love the sport and the team that much. Let's just look at these two teams that are playing right now. Randy Rosarena has been spectacular. We we love to watch spectacular. The Ray's bullpen has been spectacular. Mm -hmm. We've seen Mookie Betts make spectacular plays. We've seen Cody Bellinger make spectacular plays. We've seen Kike Hernandez hit a home run that where he walked down the first baseline. Bellinger hit a home run where he walked down the first baseline. What compels us now, you, like you say, in an ADD world, is spectacular, shiny things. Mm-hmm. What shiny things? That's the question you're asking, especially yeah. when Yachty and Wayno are gone. What shiny things do the Cardinals have? What's spectacular? What is spectacular about what they have? Well, you have Jack Flaherty, yep. who's, to me, appointment viewing. I'm yep. going to watch him every time. I think Colton Wong makes me say, wow, several times a week with his spectacular defensive mm-hmm. play. Paul Goldschmidt, while it's not shiny and it's not wow. He's the big fundy. He's the big fundy. Exactly. He's going to give you something interesting or compelling to watch. Maybe not. Com- maybe it's not compelling. Maybe he's just so consistent that it's not compelling, mm-hmm. but he's a reason to watch. And I would put Dylan Carlson on that list as well. The, but that's more of a question mark. The I'm going to watch in anticipation to mm-hmm. see what you become. And then when you get Jordan Hicks back. That's ho- right. Hopefully you're leading games and he's spectacular. But there isn't much spectacular and we're hoping. Number, number one, we're talking about a guy who's just incredibly consistent and maybe bo- the most, and this isn't a criticism, he, it's just, he is, he's, Goldschmidt is just numbingly consistent. Yes. And so I, I, I want something that not only does great things, but I, I want them to have attributes that, like Randy Rosarena that are spectacular, where you, a, a guy can run or, or do something spectacular. Goldschmidt is a first baseman. Like I think the fair word, and not it's not derogatory in any way, shape, or form. He's just numbingly consistent. I want a guy that maybe he'll have his down moments, but is capable of doing spectacular things. You want the guy that you're so excited to watch that you buy the jersey. Yeah, right, exactly. Or the guy that does something spectacular and isn't just numbingly consistent, like Ozzy, or like Jim Edmonds, or like Albert Pujols, that guy who... 
does something spectacular every single night for me. And I think that they were really hoping that Harrison Bader could be that guy. Yeah, I think so, too. Because he does things when he he is so good defensively. He makes catches that you say, how did he do that? That is insane. But then I think for so many fans, because he hasn't been able to consistently put it together offensively, that negates sometimes their excitement to watch him in center field. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And hopefully the Cardinals will find that spectacular. By the way, a couple of texts here. Uh, Number one, uh, Goldie just isn't flashy. That's right. He's not. And that's not a bad thing. He's a really good player. That's the kind of player you need to win, but he's not flashy. Uh, From the 314, it's hard to get excited about a team that keeps living in the past, like players who have anything in three years, i.e. Carpenter, O'Neal, Bader, etc. From the 636, (laughs) we used to have the run in Redbirds. Now we have the comatose Cardinals. (laughs) And... uh, from the 314. If I were to grade the Cardinals' management on building a winner, I would give them a C at best. Is it time to shuffle the cards? Just wondering. And yeah, you're 100% correct there with your text. I I want to be compelled when I watch. I want to watch compelling baseball, and it just is not right now. And it's sad because they win. They go to the playoffs, yeah. and they haven't had a losing season since 2007. So it's not winning and losing, but it's the way that their games are played that isn't particularly interesting. I also think this is a fan base that expects championships. They do. and The standards are different here. And we're coming up on 10 years since the last time that that's happened. And they've had teams that have been close. They've had teams that that have been fun to watch during this past decade. But I think the, the fan base is saying, hey, we we expect better than this. We show up. We go through the turnstiles when we're allowed to. We buy the merch. We expect a championship. The fight is coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome to the fight on Character and Smallman. In the red corner, average Joe listener. And in the blue Welcome back to Carriker and Smallman here on 101 ESPN. It's 837. That time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. So we're having this conversation during the break. I asked Scott Manziera, what's your heritage? Where are you from? And he says he doesn't know and that he's afraid to find out. Yeah, well, I just, I, I think it's some German, some Polish, some Ukrainian mixed in there. There's just a bunch of stuff kind of culminating together. You need to do one of those those tests, Scott, to find out where you're from, to get the pie chart, to say, okay, I'm this percent German, I'm this percent Irish, whatever So then whatever the highest percentage, is that what I should tell people where I'm from? Yeah. Where my name's from? Well, you should ask your family. Yeah, that's Ask true. your dad. Say, hey, where does my last name come? Where are we from? He's a regular listener. He'll probably text in 65780 yeah. to the Air Comfort Service text line what you think Manziera is. Yeah, Mr. Manziera, if you're listening, please inform your son where your last name comes from <laughs> so that we can put this to bed. All right, our challenger today for Randy is Blake. Good morning, Blake. Good morning. How you been? How's your week so far? Uh, doing great. Just making it through Monday number two. My, oh, man. Blake, Monday number two. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Tomorrow's hump day, Blake. Come on. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a good time. Well, Blake, 
Hopefully you have a great fight today. Question number one, and hopefully you're watching World Series Game 1 tonight, or you can listen right here on 101 ESPN. The pregame is at 6.30 p.m. And it's between, obviously, Tampa Bay and L.A. But, Blake, who is the all-time saves leader for the Dodgers? Is it Kenley Jansen, Eric Gagne, or Jonathan Broxton? Um, Broxton. Question number two for you, Blake. Chiefs running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had a huge game yesterday in their Chiefs win. He ran for over 160 yards. Who's the all-time leading rusher for the Kansas City Chiefs? Is it Jamal Charles, Priest Holmes, or Larry Johnson? Priest Holmes. Question number three for you, Blake. Tyler Glass now gets to start for the race tonight. What team was he acquired from? Was it the Pittsburgh Pirates, the San Diego Padres, or the Baltimore Orioles? Padres. And your final question. The Kansas City Chiefs are looking to repeat as back-to-back Super Bowl champs. Which NFL team was the last team to repeat as Super Bowl champions? Is it the Patriots, the Broncos, or the Steelers? Patriots. Okay. Checking score here. I feel like for question number four, you just have to... I, I feel like what Blake guessed would be what most people would guess. I think that guessing probably helps them in this situation. Randy, say good morning to Blake as you get settled in there. Balake, how are you? Balake. Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. We appreciate it. D-Nice. Jaqueline. <laughs> That's the A.A. Ron. That's the best sketch. It is. Key and Peel. Find it on YouTube. Key and Peel. You're welcome. All right, Randy. Question number... Before we get started, Randy, yes. do you know where your heritage is from? Do you know what character is, what your last German. name is? It's German. Yeah. Scott Manziera here does not know where his last name is from. He's got to be Italian, right? It ends with a vowel. <laughs> part, I said part German, part Ukrainian, part Polish. There's, I know there was a Piazza in my family, so there's, there's some there's kind no of Italian. There, there you go. There you go. Hopefully your dad lets you know. All right, Randy, <laughs> question number one. World Series Game 1 tonight is between Tampa Bay and L.A. You can listen to that game right here on 101 ESPN with pregame starting at 6.30 p.m. But, Randy, who is the all-time saves leader for the Dodgers? Kenley Jansen. All right, question number two, Randy. Chiefs running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had a huge game yesterday in the Chiefs' win. He ran for over 160 yards. Who is the all-time leading rusher for the Chiefs? I'm going to say it's Priest Holmes. Randy, Tyler Glass now gets to start for the Rays tonight. What team was he acquired from? The Pittsburgh Pirates. And your final question, Randy. The Kansas City Chiefs are looking to repeat as back-to-back Super Bowl champs. Which NFL team was the last team to repeat as Super Bowl champs? I'm thinking that it was the Patriots in 03 and 04. Go with the Patriots. We've got a winner. We have a winner and still champion, Randy Carricker. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs. Good job, good effort, Blake, but Randy beat you three to one. Here's the answers for question number one. The question was, who is the all-time saves leader for the Dodgers? And Ken Lee Jansen is the correct answer with 312. The all-time leading rusher for the Chiefs, Randy, is Jamal Charles. Oh, how about that? There you go. Um, Tyler Glass now was acquired from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the Rays to get the start in game one for the World Series tonight. And the last NFL team to repeat as Super Bowl champions was the New England Patriots. Blake, thanks so much for playing. Yep, thank you.
All right. Great to have you with us, Blake, on 101 ESPN. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And the World Series does get underway. I uh, was supposed to write something down about what we were going to do here. Oh, what? what's going on? Jeff Luna we want to talk That's about. That's right. Yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. No, nothing. He's not a cheater. Allegedly, he didn't do anything wrong. Allegedly, according to him. Right. That's coming your way on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. A little less than a year ago, Jeff Luno was suspended. Actually, it was well after the World Series. It was before spring training last year that former Astros general manager Jeff Luno, former Cardinals player development director Jeff Luno, was banned for the year by Major League Baseball, and he was also fired by the Astros for his part in the Astros cheating scandal. And he did an interview with KPRC2 in Houston in which he said that he is not guilty. He said, I didn't know anything about it. So this is from ESPN.com. I'm going to read this directly, Randy. Jeff Lunau, in an interview that aired Monday, once again denied that he knew about the team's sign stealing in 2017 and 18. And he said individuals who were involved with the scandal are still working for the club. Yeah, the players. Yeah. It's the team. <laughs> They're still working for the club. Yes. They wear the uniform every day. That's true. But he he says there was also a clubhouse guy That's right. That's right. that got demoted and then has been re-promoted to be in the clubhouse that was heavily involved. That seems pretty disingenuous to me to throw things on a clubby for a cheating scandal that rocked baseball. As a general manager, you had to know about it. As a manager, A.J. Hinch had to know about it. Obviously, the bench coach, Alex Cora, did know about it because he got fired. And Luno, for his part, does at least admit that they did cheat. Um, the reality is the, the Astros cheated uh, in 2017 um, and, and cheated a little bit uh, again in 2018 using just the decoder method, and um, and it was wrong. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say it was. Now, he also added that, like you said, Michelle, there are still some people around that are guilty. The people who were involved that didn't leave naturally to go to other teams are all still employed by the Astros. In fact, one of the people who was uh, intimately involved, um, I had demoted from a position in the in the clubhouse to a position somewhere else and after I was fired he was promoted back into the clubhouse so none of those people faced any repercussions they weren't discussed in the report uh, but the evidence is all there that they were involved now Luno did say that in the report Nothing was made of evidence that he presented to Commissioner Rob Manfred that exonerated him. He said that he had over 22,000 text messages that would have proved his innocence. But he said that when he walked into a meeting with Rob Manfred, that Manfred already had his mind made up. Yeah, he presented him with a binder, a 150-page binder, essentially exonerating from this. It contained emails, documents, and testimony trying to clear his name. And he said essentially that, hey, Rob Manfred already had his mind made up. Nothing that I was going to tell him was going to remove me from this equation. And 
I really wonder if he knew or if he didn't know. Because part of me thinks, how could everybody else know and you not know? How could you not catch any wind of this? And if you didn't, that's a shame then that you got fired and that you're being taken down because of this. But if I was a team that was going to potentially hire him in the future, my next question is, how did you not know? Are you are you not connected to your club on a day to day basis and wondering about players performances and their success? And you're not drilling into this enough to know what everybody else in the clubhouse and in the organization knows except for you. And there was an email that he was on. And I don't know. I don't remember if he sent it or not that to paraphrase said, do everything that you can to improve offensively. And it it gave people the belief that. That meant anything. Now, the quote, one of the quotes from the interview last night is, unfortunately, had I known about it, I would have stopped it. Nobody came to me and told me it was going on. I just didn't know. Well, are you telling me that he didn't walk past pretty much at least a couple times a week that big screen TV right on the edge of their dugout in the tunnel and say, why do we have a dugout right uh, TV right next to our dugout? Or go in and wonder in the video room why right outside the video room there are trash cans sitting there upside down. You'd think that he would have some idea. And think about any workplace. Information gets spread quickly. People find things out. I just find it pretty improbable that so many people were in on this at at so many different levels and were talking about it. And this wasn't just a, a little thing. This was pretty intricate. And to think that that never ever trickled to your office no, not even a whiff of it came a whiff. a whiff of it came your way it seems pretty unlikely to me now this is clearly him trying to defend his name because he wants another job and mm-hmm. i understand the i didn't do anything tour the please hire me again tour and i Listen, if he went and put together a 150-page binder to try and defend himself and prove his innocence, part of me thinks that he might not have, have, have been as involved as a lot of other people because you don't typically fight that hard. for Because he, he's probably going to get a job regardless. Even, mm-hmm. if, even if he was like, yeah, I knew, whatever. He probably would still get another job because he's had a lot of success. So for him to go to these lengths to defend himself, I'm sure there is a part of him, even if he knew something, that thinks I wasn't directly involved in this and I got a raw deal. But he is like the CEO of a company that has a scandal. It's the old Harry Truman line. The buck stops here. And as far as I'm concerned, if you are in that position, it's your responsibility to know what's going on. And if something and by the way, I know that there are people out there that will say that it should be John Mosellock's responsibility to know what's going on with Chris Correa. Yes, it should. There isn't a defense for that. The buck stops at the top. And whatever is happening, there should be a level of communication with the general manager or the POBO and his staff about what is going on on the field and in the front office to help them. And you have to keep your troops within those guardrails so that they don't stray. Because inevitably, when you're in a competitive industry like that, where cheating can benefit you, there are people that are going to cheat so that they can benefit. And at some point, somebody has to say to Jeff Luno, hey, there's these big bangings coming from our dugout or from our tunnel uh, while we're at bat. Maybe we should look into it. And yeah, something's got to happen. So if something untoward is happening in your organization, if you have a scandal brewing at Enron, then and you're the CEO, 
ultimately you are responsible for it. That's just the way business works. There was also other players from other teams who had said that they had heard things. Yeah. So how are other members of other organization or organizations getting wind of this and talking about this and you're in the building and you don't know? Come on. And this is a technical guy. He came to the Cardinals from PetStore.com. He knows what's going on technically. He knows about advances that can help his team. I'm sure he knows about buzzers. And, hey, the the guy should just take his medicine. He should probably just uh, – I, I think the smarter move for him at the end of this year or at the end of the World Series, issue a mea culpa. Say, and – don't say I didn't do it. Just go with the first response. We cheated and it was wrong. We cheated and it was wrong. And even though I didn't have a direct hand in it, I was part of the organization. To say that the buck stops here. The, even though it happened and I didn't know anything about it, it's still my responsibility. Yeah. Even if he would have come out and said, hey, I had no idea the length or, you know, the the breadth of this. I had no idea how wide this expanded and how intricate this was, but I should have. And that was my mistake. I would have given him much more credit yeah. instead of saying, well, I put together this big binder and it proves that I am innocent. Okay, great. You're still, even if you didn't have a direct hand in it, by, by being in that organization at that time, you're still guilty to some extent. To some extent. Yes, don't you think? Yep, yep totally. And that... That's why he got suspended and fired, because he was the CEO. He doesn't appear to have reached that conclusion yet, though. But one other thing. What did you think when you heard him say, yeah, actually, kind of the guy who was the orchestrator of all this in the clubhouse, I demoted him, and now he's back up there, and he's still in this organization. What was the first thing you thought of when you heard that? I was thinking, why didn't you fire him? I was thinking, okay, so are they still trying to cheat? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. You know, in in my mind, I thought, oh, okay, so... People who are directly involved in this, players included, are all still there. And not only that, they're riding high off this, we're the villains, everyone's against us, we're not going to apologize train, parade, I guess is the word that you could use for 2020. So why would I not think if they had no punishments that, and they're taking this attitude that they wouldn't try to do something again? You have to believe that they they would. If, If they got away with it once, why would they think they wouldn't get away with it twice? Coming up next, we've got today's big thing, including this day in Cardinals postseason history on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. 901, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. It's Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. This evening, 6.30 pregame for World Series Game 1, the Rays and the Dodgers. Tyler Glass now takes on Clayton Kershaw and Pete Fairbanks. The closer for the Rays will join us in about 13 minutes here on 101 ESPN at 9.30. New Blues defenseman Tori Krug will be with us. And you should check out the new, the brand new, 101ESPN.com. we got a new website up. I just pulled it up, Randy. It looks sharp. It looks clean. It's very easy to navigate. It's it's aesthetically beautiful. I love it. Check it out. It's very, very cool. And uh, we have a, obviously a busy day of sports coming up for you. Danny Mack at the top of the hour. And then BK and Rivs before the fast lane, taking you up to pretty close to pregame for World Series Game 1. 
But we, are speaking of the World Series, have some stuff to talk about. 101 ESPN presents the state in Cardinal postseason history. Looking back at the journeys to 11 World Championships. Brought to you by Woods Basement Systems. The highest rated, most reviewed, all things basement experts. WoodsBasementSystems.com On 101 ESPN. Michelle, October 20th is a fun date. On this date in 1982, the Cardinals won Game 7 of the World Series. Game 1 is tonight in 2020. In 1982, they played Game 7 against Milwaukee at Bush Stadium to start the ninth with a 6-3 lead. Ted Simmons and Ben Ogilvie grounded out against Bruce Souter, and Gorman Thomas represented the last Brewers chance. The first two have been retired. Gorman has proven, Gorman Thomas has proven to be a tough customer. Souter from the belt to the plate. A swing and a miss, and that's a winner! That's a winner! A World Series winner for the Cardinals! Porter throws his mask into the air. The players converge around the mound. The police arrive on the scene. The canine patrol and the mounted patrol. Some fans manage to get on the field, but they needn't do that, and they won't be out there very long. The Cardinals have won the game. Six to three. The Cardinals have won the National League pennant. And the Cardinals have won the 1982 World Series. The final score, six to three. Jack Buck had the call on KMOX and the Cardinal Network in 1982. And our thanks to MLB, the Cardinals' first championship since 1968. And Michelle, the fans were out on the field for a long time. How long? Hours. (laughs) Hours. <laughs> Hours. But I, I was able to retrieve Lonnie Smith's cap. That was my claim to fame. Really? I was working the first base yeah, I was dugout, ask you about obviously. That. So I uh, I raced to the mound because, I, well, first of all, there's a guy up on the rail saying, I'm coming down. And I said, No, you aren't. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming down. No, you aren't. And then uh, the final out is recorded the strikeout of Gorman Thomas. And the guy runs on the field along with 50,000 other people. And so I go out to the mound because one of my jobs is to try to get the players back to the dugout. And one guy rips Lonnie Smith's cap off of his head, and just in a natural reaction, I there was no thought process involved. I decked him. Boom. Where'd you hit him? In uh, the face? Right in the face. Yeah, and he went down. I went and got Lonnie's cap out of his hand and then escorted Lonnie down to the tunnel and uh, up to the clubhouse. Yeah. Randy! Hey, it, was, it was my job. And Mark Lamping always used to told me, tell me, maybe somebody from the Cardinals still has this picture, but... Outside of Mark Lamping's office at the old ballpark, there was a photo of me running out to the mound. And Mark, he said, I walk out of my office and I see you every single day. So I, I don't know if that photo still exists, but uh, it was pretty cool to know. Okay, so I need the total play-by-play here. So you you hit the guy in the face. Does he go down immediately? And then do you, do you have to grab it out of his hand? Is he yeah, still he, trying to fight? he's down and I grab it out of his hand. It's just blackout rage at this point. <laughs> and, I, and I get Lonnie. I've got my arm around Lonnie's shoulders. And uh, so... I, Pretty big, and I've got my official-looking Costello uniform on. Yes, of course. And uh, so, yeah, we rushed back. What did Lonnie say? Was he like, "Thanks, man"? He didn't say a word. Not I think, a word. I think those people, those players, were kind of overwhelmed. Have you ever seen the overhead shot of that? No. Oh, the entire infield was packed with people. I mean, it was jam-packed. Wow. So we had a, a quite a thing to traverse. I guess the statute of limitations is probably passed. So if that person 
was around in 1982. I'm sorry. It happened. So I would love to hear from the person that you punched in yeah, the I face. Don't, I don't think they know who I was. <laughs> well, um, maybe this, they're listening right now. That could be. And they're like, that was me. That Randy punched <laughs> I, in the I face. I took Lonnie's cap. Well, you get arrested too, babe, baby. Yeah. Oh, did uh, he get arrested? No, he should have. He should have, yeah. yeah. On this date in 2004, Game 6 of the National League Championship Series against the Astros, Houston scored a run in the ninth to tie the game and send it to extra innings. It went to the 12th, tied at 4. In the bottom of the 12th, Albert Pujols led off with a walk, and with one out, Jim Edmonds stepped in against Dan Maselli. Edmonds hit 42 home runs during the regular season. Knew it when he hit it. He's had a few. He's we've talked about him a lot. Yeah. So and obviously in game seven he made a spectacular catch. Roland hit the home run, and the Cardinals did advance to the World Series in 2004 against the Boston Red Sox. And we missed this one yesterday, 2006. So we apologize. October 19th of 2006. The Mets were the opposition <laughs> in NLCS game seven. Top of the ninth. Molina one for three. Six home runs during the regular season, 49 RBIs, hit only 216. Coming into this game, a 351 career hitter on the road during the postseason. Hitting seventh tonight. He hits it in the air to left field. Back is Chavez. At the wall, this ball is gone. Two-run home run, Yadier Molina. And St. Louis takes a 3-1, ninth inning, game seven lead. And Michelle, if you watch that, you can watch it on YouTube or if you have the DVD, you can see the greatest reaction to fans that are just aghast at what has just happened ever in the history of sports. The Mets fans that night, the the video of them is spectacular. So good. They hate Yachty. Still yeah. do. Yeah, You'd they have do. to, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would think so. And they hate this guy. Bottom of the night, the Mets load the bases. Carlos Beltran, who, as Tony mentioned in 2004, was 10 for 11 against the Cardinals. Or maybe it was that series, 10 for 11 against the Cardinals. And uh, bases loaded against Beltran, and the rookie closer is on the mound. Breaking ball struck him out, and the Cardinals have won the pennant. Molina leaps into the arms of Adam Wainwright. As the rookie closer strikes out Beltran looking with the bases loaded and the Cardinals celebrate before their trip to Detroit. And Uncle Charlie was born. Yes, he was. When you think about Adam Wainwright moments, is that the first one that's always going to come to mind? Yeah. And, and it's amazing because we take that rather than the World Series. I know. Striking out Brandon Inge to win the World Series. Just that freeze frame of Beltran standing there and looking. That's the way that yep. I will always, that's the first thing that will come to mind when I think about Adam Wainwright. What it's a moment. Fantastic. That is this date in Cardinal postseason history, and yesterday's date in Cardinal postseason <laughs> history, here on 101 ESPN. And that's today's big thing. Coming up, we're going to head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and a new friend of the show, Pete Fairbanks, the Rays closer, getting ready for World Series Game 1, joins us on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> It's Fairbanks right now with the tying runs aboard. And the 1-2 pitch. Swing and a miss. He got him. A fastball up and away at 100. And Fairbanks strikes out Bregman and the side is retired. So here is Aledmus Diaz with the Rays one out away. 
Diaz hit three homers in 58 at-bats this year. Hit 18 two years ago with Toronto. Swings at the first pitch. Fly ball. Shallow right field. Manuel Margot is there. And the Tampa Bay Rays are the champions of the American League. And for the second time in franchise history, they are going to the World Series. It's Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN and St. Louisan, product of Webster Groves and Mizzou. Pete Fairbanks on the mound for the pennant clincher for the Rays last Saturday night. And new friend of the show, Pete Fairbanks, joins us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN. Pete, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. I would assume that this is a pretty big day for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that one is uh, might be a little understated. But, uh, yeah, we're... Well, I think the uh, everybody down here in Dallas is pretty excited about it, at least in the uh, of the of the race traveling party. Pete, I know you were in the moment, obviously, and you've had a lot going on since then. So that Dan Schulman call we just played—is that the first time you've heard that moment? Uh, I think that's the first time I've listened to the uh, the final call. I've seen it a couple times. That was the uh, the first time I've actually had had the audio on for it. And what was your reaction listening to that back? Uh, kind of got a little bit of little bit of goosebumps going on. I mean, it's it's a that's an experience that every you know kid that throws in their backyard dreams of, or in my case, throws in the in the uh, in the street in front of their house in Webster. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think I'll look at and cherish forever. Did the reality live up to the the dreams of a kid? Um, I probably honestly have forgotten about where most of my dreams were as a kid with that. I probably thought I would be hitting, but, uh, you know, the, the reality was, uh, it, it lived up to anything I think I, I, that I probably dreamed of as a kid. Were you able to think about anything else but pitching in that moment? Were, were you thinking game situation? Were you thinking, Hey, we're in game seven of the LCS or were you, were you able just to focus in on the moment? Um, I was, I would say I was pretty much focused on, you know, what I had to do. I'm glad. Hopefully, there was no close-ups of my face because there was just me telling myself to execute every pitch with a few expletives mixed in there. <laughs> um, so now, you know, after the the walk to Brantley, kind of got back on track and was able to just you know focus on that I have nothing to do. It doesn't matter what game it is, when it is, the situation. My job is to execute the specific pitch I'm going to throw next, and to not you know let myself get caught up in the what ifs or whatever's going on besides me throwing that pitch. And a- after that, Pete, you're celebrating with your teammates. You get back to the clubhouse. What was your phone like? Cause I can imagine that any person you've ever known has, has tried to congratulate you or contact you during this time. Yeah, there were, uh, it was, it was pretty full. Um, uh, it took me about a day to finally go through everything and, you know, touch back to people that I, you know, have supported me and, um, you know, are part of that circle, and it was, it, it definitely was, there were a lot of no, notifications on the old iPhone. A lot of 314s, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of, lot, of, lot of St. Louis, a lot of 573. I got some family that lives up uh, in Mexico, just northeast of Columbia. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of local area codes. Well, Pete, that's got to be cool for you to think about the fact that St. Louis is rooting for you and St. Louis is supporting you. You talk about throwing the ball on the street in front of your house in Webster, and now here it is. The entire St. Louis area is cheering for you. We're cheering for the Rays because we want to see you have success. Well, I appreciate that. I hope you guys are uh, rooting for 
the the pride of St. Louis that never gets to play for him and old Randy. But uh, it, it, it's it's great to have more people on the Rays bandwagon, all in all. Well, speaking of Randy, Pete, the last time you were with us, you said he's the greatest hitter on the planet, possibly the universe. After his performance in the ALCS, is there anything else you would like to add to that? I mean, the guy's so good that he was walking up for the ALCS MVP trophy before they even said his name. Uh, that, that pretty much sums up what his uh, his past 15, 14 games have been like. It's It's been pretty awesome. All right, let's spin it forward here. World Series game one tonight, and we have it here on 101 ESPN. From your perspective, when, when you diagnose how the Rays have won this year, 40 games during the regular season, and then obviously uh, all the success during the postseason, if we're watching tonight, how will we know that the Rays are on their game? Uh, I think it starts with glass. It's always it's always been our uh, our pitching that's kind of set the tone. So, is uh, you know get a get a good out of the good a good start out of the gates from glass, maybe a couple runs early, and I think that we'll be able to uh, settle in and just play baseball. Is there a specific approach from a pitching standpoint that you're thinking you need to take to attack these Dodgers hitters? Uh, I'm sure that uh, Kyle Snyder, our pitching coach, and Stan will have that for us when we uh, we have our advanced meeting at the park today, but. I mean, they're a good lineup, so we'll we'll definitely take note of uh, you know where we think we can find some uh, find some space in the zone to attack, and we'll go from there. Rays reliever Pete Fairbanks, a native of St. Louis, joining us here on 101 ESPN. And Pete, you guys in the, that bullpen appeared to be really on a thin piece of string by the time you got to Game Seven. How valuable have these days off, and then having days off during the World Series? How how valuable is that to a bullpen that gets used like yours does? Uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. We're all excited that we get to have a couple off days, but we're also very upset that Cash gets the off days so he can just keep, you know, getting everybody hot no matter uh, <laughs> no matter how many you threw the night before. But, no, I mean, we're – I think that we'll, we'll come in, you know, rested and ready to go, and we'll, we're, we're, we're available for as many ups as he needs out of us. Pete, what are your emotions today? What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up? Were you able to even get any sleep last night? Uh, I slept all right. I woke up and my son was crying. So that was always a a pleasant thing to wake up to. And then he invaded our bed and started playing. So, I mean, I, I haven't had any time to really think about what's going on for right now. It's just another game day. And yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, was the first time you've been able to see that ballpark, right? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, It is maybe the biggest, it's probably the biggest baseball field and stadium I've ever seen. Wow. And I would assume that as a pitcher that, and this is just from the, the entire setup, but the, the field, how are the dimensions? Are, is it going to be a pitcher's park? Uh, I would think so based on how it kind of played from what we saw in the, uh, the DS and in the NLCS that were over there. But I mean, it's well, it kind of remains to be seen how it's going to fly at night, but from what it was last night, it is, you've got to get it to get out of there. Pete, what do you, and you told us last week about uh, some of the postseason games that, that you had been to. What are your memories of being at World Series games? Let's see. Um, I think the only World Series game I was, I've been to was in 11. Um, my buddy and I got standing room only tickets uh, from somebody off Craigslist at a gas station out uh, on that Krispy Kreme off of 44. Yep. Down in, um, I don't know what the technical name for that area is. South County. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it was just down, and, and I mean, I remember we showed up early. 
just we were uh, right on the on the right right on the right on the batter's eye. There was a little staircase up to some bleachers that we kind of hung out on the whole game. Had a pretty good view. So that's I would say that's really the only uh, was the only game I've been to. And then I went down and uh, to Game Seven in 2011 after they uh, they won it and was down there for their on field celebration. So, and you have to be excited. Uh, obviously, everybody is about the World Series. But how do you feel about the fact, and there's nothing we can do about it, that you just won't have more than 12,000 fans? I guess it'll be just this year, it'll be nice just to have fans in the stands, right? Yeah, I, I think everybody uh, on our end is very excited that the cutouts are going to start moving. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think it'll be it'll be a little different. It'll probably be more of a neutral site. Obviously, it is a neutral site, but kind of that feel where there's not you know, you don't have a distinct rooting party, but I mean, given that everybody wants to be a Dodger fan and a Yankee fan, it seems like mm-hmm. we'll probably uh, we'll probably be on the wrong side of that with some Dodger fans. But you can only do so much when there's twelve thousand people there. <laughs> right. Well, know that your hometown is behind you, hundred percent. We're all rooting for the Rays, and we're excited about you getting things started tonight. Good luck. Have fun in the World Series, and thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. Yep, thanks for having me on. All right, take care, Pete. That is uh, Pete Fairbanks. He closed out Game 7 of the ALCS for the Rays, and he will be in action tonight for Tampa against the Dodgers Game 1 of the World Series. Friend of the show. Come on with us twice. Game 1 of the World Series. Pete Fairbanks taking some time out for his hometown. Pretty cool. Love it. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, we're going to head back to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. The newest blue is Tori Krug, defenseman who came as a free agent from Boston. And Tori joins us next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. With Michelle Smallman, I am Randy Carricker on your home of the Blues, 101 ESPN. And we head right to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And standing by is Tori Krug, who joined the Blues as a free agent about a week and a half ago. And it's great to have him as a member of St. Louis and the Blues. Tori, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. How you doing? Hey guys, I'm doing uh, very well. Thanks for asking. Uh, great morning. Hope you guys are doing well as well. We are, Tori, and uh, welcome to St. Louis officially. We're the home of the Blues, so we're excited to have you here in town. But first question, what made you want to decide with uh, decide to sign with the Blues? Uh, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, very excited to uh, get all get going. Um, I think the you know, when I looked at uh, a lot of my opportunities and uh, over free agency, I think I was very attracted to the roster the St. Louis Blues have and um, the ability to compete uh, for a Stanley Cup year after year and, and the core that um, many of those guys are the same age as me. And I think, you know, those things stuck out. Uh, and that's, you know, why I ended up there. It's really interesting that you played against the Blues in the Stanley Cup finals just a year ago, and now you're a member of the team. What impression did that series make on you? <laughs> yeah, it's very weird, to be honest. Uh, if you would have told me, you know, two days before heading into free agency that that was going to happen, uh, I probably would have said you're crazy. But I think just the uh, the impression of, you know, playing against that team uh, stuck out to me because it was, you know, wave after wave. And, uh, you know, everyone from the top six forwards to the depth forwards, uh, the defense core, uh, and obviously Bennington and Nett, it was like every time they jumped over the boards, it was wave after wave. They were coming at you. They were playing in your face. Um, they're a very tough team to play against. And I think that's a, a sign of a championship team. And um, that stuff is, is the stuff that sticks out not only in the playoffs, but when you play in an 82-game regular season, um, you know the St. Louis Blues are coming to town and you're getting ready for the game. So uh, that's that's what stuck out to me. 
So, Tori, you're familiar with the blue style of play and their identity, but what is it about your game and your skills that you can bring to this team? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, many people compare the Blues to the Bruins, so um, I think that's a, a pretty fair assessment. I think, you know, what I can come in here and do is uh, create, uh, you know, transition uh, from the D zone. I break pucks out very well in the transition game through the neutral zone, making clean passes to get the, the skilled forwards time and space with the pucks so that they can make plays. That's what those guys want, and that's what I can bring to the table. And then, obviously, uh, power play is, is a great strength of mine. So, um, you know, I'm excited to get there and get to work. Tori Krug, new Blues defenseman with us on 101 ESPN. Tori, is a young player, and then once you made it to the NHL as a young NHLer, was there a guy that you patterned your game after that you said, okay, that, I want to play like that guy? <laughs> To be honest, um, there wasn't anyone in particular. I tried to take bits and pieces of uh, many different guys throughout the years. Um, you know, I grew up in Detroit, so I, I got to watch all those Stanley Cups and uh, watch yeah, many conference finals with the <laughs> watch <laughs> a lot of conference finals between the Blues and the Red Wings. So uh, Nick Lidstrom was a guy that comes to mind. Um, you know, John Michael Lyles, who went to Michigan State, which, you know, we were both alumni of. He's a smaller defenseman um, that came in the league, and uh, the list goes on and on. I mean, you know, even I played next to Zidane Ochara for, you know, eight years here. Even though he's a foot taller than me, there's bits and pieces I try to take from his game that, uh, ref- you know, show up as a reflection in mine. So there's not one particular player, but, um, you know, I try to be myself and, and create an identity uh, within myself. Okay, so Tori, you mentioned you're from Michigan. You played at Michigan State. You're a Midwest guy. We know that you have come to St. Louis to play hockey, but what did you know about St. Louis prior? Have you spent any time here? Uh, not too much, to be honest. Uh, I had a my oldest brother. He played junior hockey in St. Louis uh, back in the day for the St. Louis Sting. Um, so I, I've been around there a little bit. Uh, playing in the finals, we spent a little bit more time than we usually do on a normal road trip. Um, you know, we stayed in Clayton, so we've heard nothing but great things for, you know, suburban living and, uh, raising a family, which, you know, my, my wife and myself, we have a 16 month old daughter. Uh, we have a dog, so we're very excited about, you know, going there and, um, you know, getting attached to the community. So Tori, we've been doing some research on you. We're trying to learn about the newest member of the blues and you mentioned your dog and we know your dog's name is Fenway and <laughs> you know, we are Cardinals town. We love our sports here in St. Louis. So I would just present this to you that if you were considering getting another dog, maybe naming it Bush just to even the scales here. <laughs> yeah, that's uh no, that's a fair, fair comment. Uh, we'll see what happens, but that was actually like the, the first and the easiest decision me and my wife ever agreed upon uh, was naming our dog Fenway. We thought it was a natural fit, but um, no, that's fair to say. And what's your daughter's name? Uh, Sailor's my daughter. Sailor? Okay, beautiful. Sailor, yep. Tori Krug is with us on 101 ESPN. You mentioned in your press conference, uh, your Zoom conference the night you got signed, that you had played with Justin Falk in the past. Can you kind of elaborate on uh, you guys playing together and what you were able to take out of that? Yeah, I mean, we played, this is a few years ago now, but uh, we played together as a deep pairing and world championships for Team USA. And, um, you know, we we were able to uh, hold down the fort on the blue line and, and bring the first medal uh, to Team USA in a very, very long time there. But um, I think more than anything, we got to know each other as people. Uh, we were actually roommates for the first couple of weeks there. Um, and then on the ice, it was, um, you know, a puck-moving pair that, you know, took pride in both ends of the ice. and. Uh, we were able to feed off that chemistry. We played a little bit together on the power play as well. 
Um, but I think more than anything that, that sticks out is the off-ice uh, camaraderie, getting to know each other a little bit. And, and uh, we have mutual friends that you know, throughout the league that we've been able to keep, keep in touch with as well. So the on-ice stuff will all take care of itself. If, we're, if we are paired up together, uh, again, I think it'll um, be an easy transition. Tori, we saw how difficult the business side of this sport is from Alex Petrangelo. You know, he talked about it afterwards, just what the process was like for him going through free agency. And for you, I know that you had said prior that you didn't really want to leave Boston. You and your family loved living there. You had eight great years there, two trips to the Stanley Cup final. But what was that process like for you from a from a business and an emotional standpoint, loving where you played, not really wanting to leave there, but understanding that, hey, this is a business opportunity and I need to figure it out? Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. Um, it's tough to to mix business and emotion, and I think um, it's a very you know smart thing to to separate the two. Um, for us, I'll be very honest. We tried to make it work in Boston uh, multiple times, and it just wasn't working out. And uh, much much like Alex's situation, um, sometimes you're better off just moving on. And uh, we're very very excited about the opportunity we have in St. Louis to to come in and, and win a couple Stanley Cups. I was very um, sad. I actually mentioned it in, in an Instagram post over the weekend. I feel very bad that uh, I wasn't able to, to bring a cup to um, the Boston Bruins and the fans in Boston because that's our ultimate goal as athletes. And um, you guys took one away from us, so <laughs> we failed them there a little bit there. But um, very excited about um, the business aspect of getting to St. Louis and and uh, becoming a big part of this team and, and bringing the Stanley Cup back here. You know, what's interesting about that, Tori, is there, there were so many guys here, whether it was Brett Hall or Al McInnes. Al McInnes told me one time his greatest regret in his career was not being able to bring a Stanley Cup as a player to St. Louis. It really, when you make a connection with a community, it really does affect you when you aren't able to bring home the prize. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. I mean, um, I spent so much time you know, devoting my time and energy, uh, becoming a big part of the, the locker room in Boston, um, on and off the ice, connecting with that community, uh, doing a lot of charity work, you know, visiting the hospitals, um, living in this neighborhood year round. I think that was a big, another big connection. You know, we lived in Boston. Most guys go back to where they're from, but we stuck around in the summers and, and that was a great connection to the community as well. So um, it, it was definitely a bummer not being able to bring the ultimate prize back. But like you said, you know, I left with a lot of great memories and, and now it's time to move on. I'm becoming a, or I am a blue and I'm excited to become a, a part of the community there. Um, you know, I'm very excited at a lot of the uh, charitable contributions that I can make uh, and just connecting with the fans there. That's a, a big part of what we do. Um, we are expected to perform on the ice, but off the ice, we serve a big part of the community, and, and I'm excited about that aspect as well. So, Tori, as you mentioned, the Blues were your opponent prior, but I know you've uh, exchanged some tweets with your new teammate, Robert Thomas, but have you been <laughs> able to chat with any of the guys uh, as you signed with the Blues? Yeah, that was a, a great tweet and, and an easy uh, response. So, um, you know, I, I've actually talked to a lot of guys, um, you know, most guys through text and then a few phone calls with a few of my teammates. Um, like I said, I, I'm very excited about uh, the way I've been received. And, um, you know, I mentioned before the, the core group there is a very, very similar age to uh, me and my wife. And that's something that was very attractive to us in free agency. And we can come in there and be part of that group for, you know, seven years to come. And, um, you know, it's been fun getting to know these guys a little bit. And, and we're, like I said before, we're very eager to get out there and get going. So looking forward to getting to know everyone a little bit more. 
Tori, if, if you haven't seen it on Twitter, just do a search for Craig Berube's speech. And if you haven't seen it, it's incredible. But I, I want to get your impressions of Chief. Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to him um, during free agency that day, the, the whirlwind that it was. and um, Just the, the straightforth honesty, um, kind of getting a grasp on his philosophy, some of the things he appreciated about my game. And um, I see a, a lot of similarities to the way, you know, the, the recent coach I had in Boston. So, um, I've heard nothing but unbelievable things from his players. And he's a guy that you want to play for you guy. You want to go to war for he's emotional. Uh, he's honest. And I think those are all, um, you know, attributes that you want in a coach. I want to touch on a couple of more things. Number one, it seems like there used to be a pretty disparate style of play difference between the East and the West. And it seems like that's closed for me now, as you watch the two conferences, is there any difference that you think you have to adjust to coming to this conference? You know what? I'm not too sure. I've thought about that over the years, and it's actually something that um, going into free agency I was curious about. I think on the ice at the end of the day, you have two teams that are um, you know playing to win, and um, you just try to make sure that your style of play is, is the one that's pushing the pace in the game, and uh, you want to make, make other teams conform to your style. Uh, and that's obviously something that the Blues have had a lot of success doing. Um, the main differences from the East and the West is going to be the travel for me. You know, I was able to sleep in my own bed a lot more. Um, it would be day trips in and out. Um, you know, when you're going from Boston to New York city, it's a, a shorter flight than, you know, St. Louis to San Jose. So uh, the travel is going to be a bit of an adjustment, but uh, we're very lucky that we, you know, we travel uh, very well and, uh, they make it easy on us uh, to go out and perform every night. So that'll be the biggest difference. And you seem to be a guy. I know the Blues talked a lot after the bubble about how a lot of their play and emotion is driven by the fans. You seem like a, a player, at least in watching you in those finals and the little that I've seen you play, you really do respond to the energy that the fans deliver. Absolutely. I mean, um, and I think that a lot of that is the connection you know, between – my style of play in, in the community here in Boston. And, and I, from what I've been told, it's going to um, relate very well to the people in St. Louis. So um, playing in, in that rink uh, during the finals, it was, it was electric and uh, the fans were great. They were loud and you could tell that the, the blues feed off of that. So um, I'm looking forward to nothing more than just getting out in front of the fans and, and playing in that first game and uh, getting to getting back to work here. Are you keeping number 47? I am, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a special number for me, and um, kind of a hybrid between two great defensemen in, in Boston. Uh, I was number forty-four growing up, and it played. I used that in college as well. And uh, to me, it's a very special number now as my career progresses and looking forward to seeing it on a Blues jersey. That works out exceptionally well, not only because of Orr and, and Bork, but because during this first season that you're a Blue, they're going to retire 44 here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that works out. Then, right? Yeah, it really does. Tori, great to have you with us. You were fantastic. We're looking forward to having you here in town. And we'll uh, once camp starts, whenever that might be, we'll talk again. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Great. Thank you, Tori. That is new Blues defenseman Tori Krug on 101 ESPN. He was great. I think St. Louis is really going to embrace him and no love doubt. having him be a member of the Blues. Yeah, even though he did like the Red Wings as a kid, but he was growing up there. What do you expect? He liked the Red Wings, and yes, he was a part of the Bruins, and the, a lot of Blues fans have animosity towards the the Bruins because of the Stanley Cup final, but the Blues came out on top. We, we won. They won. And I like that historical perspective. 47 because of Bobby Orr 
and Ray Bork. That's pretty cool. And you know what else I liked is how you could feel how upset he was that he wasn't able to bring a cup to Boston. And I only imagine that that determination and that hunger is going to carry with him to St. Louis, and he's going to really want to get one here. Thanks to Tori for joining us on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Coming up, we're going to cross things over with Dan McLaughlin. Scoops with Danny Mac at the top of the hour on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. It was good to hear from Pete Fairbanks, the closer for the Rays, and also Tori Krug of the Blues. And Dan McLaughlin joins us now in studio as we get ready for Scoops with Danny Mac. Good morning, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm ready for the World Series tonight. Let's go. Who you got? Been doing a lot of thinking about it. Uh, I'm happy that we've got the two best teams. I, I truly believe we got the two best teams. I'm going with the Dodgers. I think they're too deep. Uh, I don't think the Dodgers pitched to Randy Rosarena. And if somebody else doesn't step up for Tampa Bay, then I, I just don't think that they can win. I think they've got great pitching, Pete Fairbanks being one of them. But I'm just not sure they're as deep as the Dodgers. What are your expectations for Clayton Kershaw tonight, Dan? I don't know. I, I think that's a great unknown. Um, I don't know if it's fair looking at his postseason numbers, Michelle, to say, well, he's just not been a great postseason pitcher. I, I understand the numbers are what they are. They're not great, but a lot of that has been due to the fact that he is pitched on short days rest a lot of times, a lot of times. Um, so my expectations would be in this day and age, and both teams are analytically based, if not all baseball, it seems like, certainly Tampa Bay, but a couple of times through the lineup, get through the fifth, maybe, and then you go to your bullpen. That's what I, I think that's what you do with both these. I, these starters just don't go deep. No, I was going to say, and Michelle and I talked about it earlier, a quality start for Kershaw tonight might be five innings, three runs. And exactly. If you're the Dodgers, you probably take that. And if you're Dave Roberts, it's so interesting because – when Clayton Kershaw broke into the league, if he was rolling along, you stayed with Clayton Kershaw. And now at this time and day and age of baseball, you say, well, he went through two times through the lineup. We turn it over to our bullpen. I don't know if it's great for the game, but that's how the game is being played. That's how the game is being managed. And that's what the numbers tell you. So that might be my, you know, to answer your question, Michelle, which is a great question. I think that's my expectation is like, Okay, get through two times through the lineup, and then we turn it over to our bullpen. And Urias was awesome the other day with uh, nine up and nine down, and the first guy since uh, uh, Martinez, Pedro Martinez in 99, to have a save of of that type uh, in postseason play. So maybe that's the expectation, is just try to get a couple of times through the order. And to your point about Randy Rosarena, why would you let him beat you at this point? I think that's the thing that if you're the Dodgers, you, you do. And if... If I'm pitching to him, I'm pitching way inside, kind of like what the the Dodgers did with Acuna. Remember, Acuna was kind of rolling, and they got him in, and they knew his wrist was a little banged up, and they hit the knob of the bat. He never was the same player. I'm not saying you're hitting Randy Rosarain. I'm not making that statement at all. I'm just saying you really pitch him in, you back him off the plate, you make him uncomfortable, and you just don't let him beat you. Um, he's been that good in this postseason. There's no other way to put it. And one of the problems that the Rays run into is that from Mookie Betts on down through your number eight hitter, all of the Dodgers guys can hit the ball out yes. of the ballpark. There's nobody to pick out to say, that guy's not going to beat me because the next guy will. Bellinger, Turner, <laughs> Muncy, Seager, list goes on Peterson, and on. Yeah, Kike yeah. Hernandez. They're just loaded, man. It, it's just a complete 
team. They are they are a complete team. And Mookie Betts, um, I knew he was a really good player. I knew he was a great player. He's a fabulous player. I mean, he is just awesome at what we're watching right now on the biggest stage. The defensive plays that he's made. I mean, we forget this guy was playing second base for a couple of games yep. this year for the Dodgers, and he's making a great catch in right the other day. He's made two great plays in the NLCS. He's just a fabulous player. It's but fun to watch. Last night, Buck Walter was on MLB Network and said that Mookie Betts is the best right fielder he's ever seen in person. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That's quite a statement. And yeah. think about this. If... If Mookie Betts, and again, hindsight 2020, if Mookie Betts is a member of the Dodgers and not the Red Sox, Dodgers win that series over the Red Sox. That's right. He's he's the difference maker in that series, probably. Yeah, the other day on their broadcast, the Dodgers broadcast, after the first catch up against the wall, not the home run saver, but the other one, Charlie Steiner said, if there's ever been such thing as a $350 million bargain, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. It, it might be. Yeah, he's that good. Yeah. He's Mich- that good. Michelle has a meeting that she has to go to. Okay, Michelle. See you, Dan. All right. Bye, have Randy. a good meeting. See, See you Scott. tomorrow. Great job. Uh, Danny, I do want to ask about Tori Krug because I, I think... When we go back, I enjoyed your. Uh, you, you guys did a great job with the interview. That was fun. Yeah, he, he seems like a fun guy. We hockey may, players are fun guys. They're, aren't they? they're great. Yeah. yeah, we may have seen the best pair of point men together on one team in the history of the league. When you got two Hall of Famers like Pronger and McKinnis playing together, left and right side, it's pretty incredible. This might be the best pair of power play point guys that the Blues have had among defensemen since then. You know who he reminds me of? And it was when I was covering the Blues. And I don't know if I'm right about this. He reminds me of Steve Duchesne. That's a good call. Uh, Steve Duchesne was a really good player that did not get the kind of notoriety, at least in my opinion, because he was overshadowed by those great players. Mm-hmm. Steve Duchesne was a heck of a player. He was. And was a really good player in terms of, of just being able to uh, control the power play a little bit if he was out there or manage the, the, the puck, be able to move the puck. I liked him. I, I always thought he was just a really good, solid player, an offensive-type-minded uh, defensive player. Um defenseman and that's who I as I watch him and I've seen Krug play a long time I, I've always kind of you know not big not intimidating but just a solid player that's offensive minded from that position and so when I watch him if if people can remember Steve Duchesne that's that's kind of who he reminds me of yeah Steve Duchesne not only a very good player for the Blues but He's another guy that went to the Red Wings and won a Stanley Cup with them. You have to remind us of that because, you know, this isn't the fight, okay? I don't need to be reminded about former Blues that went to the Red Wings, Randy, and had success. There's plenty of them. It struck a nerve, and it's not the kid's fault that (laughs) Tory Krug grew up a Red Wings fan and watched them beat the Blues in the playoffs all the time. You mentioned that. Again, you're going to talk about the Gretzky giveaway, okay? You know how much that, that hurts me. You know that. You know that's like one of my top five things in in St. Louis sports history that still really bothers me. I try to you know me. Yes. I stay pretty even keel. Yes, you are. You know, home run gets given up. I in the moment I'm eh, okay, but I get over it. I'm not over the the Gretzky giveaway. I'm so, you know, I more t- more so the the slap shot, but there was there was the fact that I it was the last time I saw 99 wearing a blue note. That that hurt. It was great. So, I got to tell you something. That was 1996, okay? Yep. So, 0616 Last spring, I guess it was during the pandemic, on a Sunday morning, I get a text from Joe Buck that the Iserman game is on NHL Network to flip over to it. And so I I did. And so we're kind of texting back and forth, watching the game together. I had forgotten 
how unbelievable that shot by Iserman was. It's incredible. It's, it, it, it was unbelievable. I don't blame Gretzky near as much now no, after watching it another. Because, as you know, I did for a long time, yeah, like I a couple of did. decades. The but shot is incredible. It, it might be the Should best have been shot saved, you'll but ever it was, see. It was a great I don't shot. Think that, I don't even think Casey could have saved it. It was that good from, from that spot. Um, by the way, go back and look at I, I was because they were playing all those great games on MLB Network and NHL mm-hmm. and NFL and all that stuff. So I was doing the same thing. Have you ever looked back at those two teams in '96 and the amount of Hall of Famers that are on those two rosters? It's crazy. I mean, it is. You talk about talent on the ice at that time with Gretzky leading the way. But, man, there are some incredible players with Pronger, McInnes, Iserman, Grant Fuhrer, Wayne Gretzky, as I mentioned. I mean, Lidstrom is out there. It's incredible how good those teams were. The Blues could have iced a group of six with Fuhrer, McInnes, Pronger, Hull, Gretzky, Glenn Anderson. Could have iced a group of six Hall of Famers. It's incredible. Yeah, amazing. There was such a fun time in Blues hockey, and I think if they win that game, they win the Cup. I really do. I think so, too. Now Colorado was awesome at that time. They were awesome. Yeah. I, I think they. I, I do though think that the Blues would have had a great shot. And Wah was playing at his absolute yes, best. He was at that point. But the Blues, they have every element you needed. And Gretzky was still on top of his game too. He was awesome. For he, he still was very, very good. I mean, Gretzky was very good in St. Louis despite yeah. being limited with uh, injuries. I mean, we didn't know how injured he was until he left here. But and now we hear the stories about how banged up he was. I mean, yeah. they literally were carrying him off the ice at times. You yeah. know, because his back was hurt. He, he was playing through pain and. But he was. these guys are warriors, man. They are absolute warriors. So it's good to have Tori Krug here. That's Dan. Have a great show. All right. Thanks. What do we uh, got coming up? Dave Matter coming up. We're going to talk about Mizzou, Kentucky this weekend, and also a little bit about Conzo Martin and starting up the uh, Missouri season for basketball as well. Very nice. Scott Manziara, our producer-engineer, doing great work. Thank you, sir. Hi, thanks, Randy. And for Michelle, we thank you for tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show for all of us. Until tomorrow morning at 7, have a great day, St. Louis. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.